Cutting for Sign with Ron Cecil and Daniel Pinnerklein. The bad white man calling the devil. The Yavapai calling eyes like the sky. Hey, welcome to Cutting for Sign, number... Um, we are on a number, and it's above 40 and below 50. It's 45, but it's actually 46 because of the prologue. All right. So, yeah. And we're going to try something new today. Okay. You're not going to talk. I'm going to say everything. Observe. <laughs> take notes. Finally. <laughs> Finally. Nice. Finally. Hold on a second. <laughs> Too short. <laughs> nice. I'm ready. <laughs> <laughs> no, nah, uh, we're, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna each take a minute or two to, to say what cutting for sign is and what mm. it does. Mm. What do you think? What's uh, this podcast? About? Yeah, cutting for sign is is um you know, an an old phrase, an old archaic phrase meaning to search for the thing that you are hunting in particular. And there's and I for me that's a metaphor for how we find our way in life. And there's risk and there is nuance and there is adventure and you need sometimes you need a break, right? Like sometimes you need help, and and that phrase has always been in my has been in my mind. I, I remember hearing as a child from my dad somehow, and it's lived with me for a long time. Huh? Yeah. So that's what it means to me. You heard it as a child. Yeah, I did. My dad was kind of obsessed with weird, like he was he was obsessed with mountain man lore. Oh. And we would. Uh, he was a mountain man reenactor and we would um, go to these what they call rendezvous which are these camps where everyone is dressed in clothes that are made to look like they were made before the year 1840 yeah and we would throw tomahawks and knives and and cook out of like iron cast iron shit and shoot black powder rifles and Dressing leather and all that stuff, hmm. sleeping teepees. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So that's where you got the you got the thing. That's cool. Okay. Mm. Okay. What's it mean I for feel, you? I feel you're... like it means more to that too, but we're just getting warmed up because uh, <laughs> it's changed. It's changed for me. Yeah. And I love telling people about this podcast and what it's called and the name of it and why the name is the name and it has grown for me. It started out with, well, we like to read signs in the world. And, <laughs> find our way through life and it's a metaphor because that means cutting for sign is sign that has been left by an animal or a human and you when you cut that sign you're noticing what it is you delineate what it means and then you follow it and that's like a metaphor um, for reading the signs of life but then that became after that that became it became the actual signs of life that I cut started to come through this podcast mm. a lot like we it started to be a very meaningful meaningful thing like what well like okay like tracy hunter mm -hmm. you know she sent great me episode. that yeah. she said yeah she sent us that um little thing about the feminine journey you know yeah. some more another the masculine hero's journey and then there was the feminine journey yeah and that was very meaningful to me <clears throat> so it, that that conversation started to be meaningful in and of itself mm -hmm. as opposed to be a conversation about meaningful things or uh, about how to read meaningful things. right right and then on and then uh, or what might be meaningful 
or what we give meaning to. Seriously, yeah, we're gonna get into it today. I know. I yeah, got, I get a good tingle, uh, tingle. In, yeah, in the, in the yeah, I don't know some part of my body. <laughs> Sorry, that one went off the rails. <laughs> <laughs> but then <laughs> so bad, I can't even make fun of you. I was gonna make fun of you, and I couldn't even. I beat you to it. Couldn't do it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they call that point of origin check. Yeah. Um, and then it became cutting for sign. What is it? Something that I I say now is oh is that cutting for sign the it is that original meaning but the thing that we're you and i are pursuing yeah the animal is a more developed better more authentic more untuned more aligned version of ourselves or an experience of life i like that i like that um and i know it's a little cheesy no it's know? not i mean it ha- i mean look dude any i, I mean if you if you've uh, squeeze any metaphor you will end up with kind of a you know <laughs> Gushy, nasty yeah. Bullshit. yeah well i don't know you get to the the soft <laughs> chewy center for sure <laughs> I, I i just i think that okay i was i was listening to david david's book yeah and he was talking about how if that he he said the mo a zen monk a buddhist monk a monk can meditate their whole lives and they will just scratch the surface of the subconscious Mm. you know yeah i thought that was very cool because the subconscious uh theoretically is bottomless right and so i think that when when in the parlance of of the uh, self-help world be your best self i don't know if that's possible let's just let's just be on the path you know as long as i know i'm tracking the animal you know i am closer all the time yeah i don't am i gonna suddenly be my best self never fucking never it doesn't even make any sense Mm. you know Mm. i guess you could reframe it what what do you think yeah i I mean i i don't i guess i've never thought about what my best self looks like what yeah i mean i mean look dude like my whole life is about becoming a better version of myself right yeah like that's that's not even the question i guess i guess i guess i've never painted like a final thing because i've always thought you know kind of what you're saying now is like i'll i'll never be perfect like yeah i've got you know i've got some very lofty aspirations that i'd love to connect to but I, i think at the end of the day when i die like i want my you know the things i want the most are to know that my my family knows beyond anything that i love them and that I love myself well enough that I didn't leave any stone unturned in my in my journey. That's deathbed thoughts, goals. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Now we're talking. It was the second time. Like we we were we were just sharing a story, uh, a little adventure that I went on, and I was like, you know, you were like, proceed with caution, and I was oh, like, hey yeah. man, I need to say yes to this adventure because this is the type. This is what I'm here for. And when I said that, I was like, ooh, I meant that. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm. And I find myself saying things like that more often these days. And I think that that's being more attuned, more aligned. Mm-hmm. And I think that that instead of let's be our best self, let's find our best self. It's just let me attune. Let me align increasingly more. Yeah. You know, let's just get maybe fuck it. Let's just be better. Always. That's fine. Always satisfied. Yeah. Never happy. You know what I mean? <laughs> always happy. Never satisfied. Whatever. I know what you mean. I, I, I get what you're trying to say. I'm 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 really I'm kind of excited about the idea of hunting myself 
I, I like it too. Like that's an interesting, yeah. that's like a, there's some layers to that. That's, that's what it's come for me. It's there, and, I, and I'm like, meta-ness to that one. Yeah. And it's like, Ooh, you know, what the, yeah. I'll probably never find it, but I'm going to get closer and I'm the, the signs are going to get more interesting, intriguing, Yeah, you know, and maybe, maybe you confront yourself on your deathbed the moment you die. Maybe that's when you find the animal and our whole, our whole life is spent tracking. I'm cool with that. Cutting, cutting for sign till the day I die. I'm cool. I do like one thing that this is brought up in my life is that, uh, and we'll get into this with Dave is like, I find the small little details that inspire me to take my next right step. So meaningful. And when they, and when yeah. they stack up, like when it's yes. like one thing after another, after another, and after another, like I actually, you know, it's kind of like, we've just started to say, um, man, I had, you know, today was like very cutting for sign. Like it was, mm. I'm, and I appreciate that you and I say that. I hope, you know, hope at some point someone else out there. It's happened. Really? Oh, fuck yeah. There was, <laughs> there's been a couple times where someone has used the cutting for sign in conversation with me because of our podcast. Yes. It's, it's, you yes. knocked it out of the park with that name. Oh man. I love the name dearly. It, it's, it, it, how often does someone do that? Hey, what am I going to title this book? Hey, what am I going to um, name this kid? What are we going to name this podcast? And then you were like, one day passed, we batted around some shitty ideas and you were like, cutting for sign. I was like, you just named the podcast like for, for in propriety, yeah. for, for perpetuity. We need, we need a brick and mortar building with it, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> we need one of those Joe Rogan signs behind us. It's like, in you know, like, a, oh yeah. However, cutting for sign would be, but it's a great name though. and it's you. catching on yeah in, in, in other, other people that. are finding it useful that aren't even in, as nearly as invested as we are um this is a side story i just think it's fun but about this about catching yourself we're you know we live i live on the fourth store of this fourth floor of this apartment building yeah and from the street you can see our living room you can kind of see where we live and the whole family and i were walking back one night it was around it was around Halloween of last year and we were trying to tell spooky stories and just be a little spooky together. And I go, guys, look up there. And my whole family looks up. And I said, did you see us? Did you see us all up there looking back on us? And it creeped the hell out of the kids. <laughs> That's pretty good. That's pretty good. A little, that was a little like bendy moment. Yeah. I, oh, that happened to me actually the other night I was, I was at a concert. You saw yourself. Dude, I did. And it freaked the fuck out of me out for about 20 seconds. Rick Medeiros, he was he, he met me for a concert and he's standing a few feet from me. We had Rick on an earlier episode. Yeah. Yeah. And and we had the he had he had an oh. outfit of mine on. And that oh. was and well, you know, I wear his hat all the time with the oh. inside knives hat. And he oh. had that on and a black mask. And I like I looked at him for Ten five seconds, say, say five seconds, but it felt like a long fucking time of me, like my brain not knowing what to do with an ear, a mirror image, not <laughs> on a mirror. I got another David McRaney reference for you then. Mm, In his mm. book, he was talking about this thought experiment. Well, if you swap one atom of, of he was using Edward James almost. Uh-huh. Yeah. And he'd say if you for you. And he was like, if you keep swapping atoms, at what point in time is it like? And then he's like, at what this is a pretty good joke. He was at some point in time, would you have an Edward James almost? You know, <laughs> I was like, okay. You just, you know, it's just like you gotta do it. You, you know? gotta do it. It's a it's like with the, the low, low-lying dick jokes. You gotta just every once in a while yeah. you just like, it's an easy one. I'm gonna yeah. Edward James. 
he was stand was he uh stand and deliver don't know i think don't, that don't i think the, he was the, the teacher at stand and deliver is is he here can you tell that he's here? he's not here okay edward james almost <laughs> is not here nor <laughs> is, is nor is mr rainy here rainy is almost here um uh, yeah yeah uh, that's cool. That's interesting. Weird shit like that. I can't wait to talk to David about meaningfulness. Well, let's meaning, talk to him. Let's is... talk about him for a moment here. <clears throat> well, yeah. What do you think? What opening thoughts? Well, yeah. What drew me to him in particular is a guy who's who's more or less made a career out of asking, like, do I know what I really think I know? And and does the yeah. human brain know what it really thinks it knows? And for me in my own life, like that's the question I've been asking for a long time, especially around the word deconstruction is a, is, is a very popular yes. word right now. I, I think he even has an episode called Deconstructing Yourself. Awesome. Yeah. On his podcast? On his podcast. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I, I listened to one, <laughs> a, an episode just this morning on anxiety, and we're going to get into some of that subconscious meddling that our brain likes to do, meddling. Um, but I, I because I, and I think you and I've said this we may have even said it on here but what's fascinating to me is is when you question one thing if you really are critical about one thing the natural next step is to be critical about everything not not criticism as as far as like I'm you know I think I that's you. bad I just mean you gotta have to ask the bigger questions of everything in your life yeah and that I think is often too scary for most people. And so they just don't. They would rather it be comfortable and life, life, it being life. They would rather just be comfortable and not, hmm. not have to carry too much existential weight, mental yep. weight. Yep. Because then there's paradox. And if you're not prepared for paradox, Ugh, it's going to fuck everybody, you up. Everybody out there. I mean, I'm not usually wouldn't like say to do this, but I feel yeah. like holding opposites ability to hold paradox is, is a next level human thing that we all just got to get up for. Everyone's got a plan until they get paradoxed. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Good turn on that one. Oh, can you get drive over? Yeah, for sure. All right. Friend is here. Hey y'all! Hey, hey! All right, how are you, I, sir? Yeah, dude, we're making it happen. I, yeah. I appreciate your sound dampening blanket. Yeah, and that's great. It also is good for like covering up whenever you haven't cleaned up the room. <laughs> I mean, if you could see <laughs> nice. the life around the frame of where I'm at, you would. It's it's all good. Yeah, we're we're among company. You're among good company. Cool, cool, cool. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Just tell me if I if I can uh, help you guys in any way, make it this better. So, but I've got the laptop open and uh, we have mood lighting all around. You oh, know, good. we're working out uh, how to make ours look good and sound good. Every every episode, every month, we we learn something, pick something up. So we're not highly critical at this stage of where we're at. But <laughs> you know, so just to be honest, I don't know. Are you noticing it? I mean, the other word I was going to say is uh, um, uh, competent. We're, <laughs> we are. We are. We we're, it's it's a spectrum, but we're competent. We're on a spectrum of competence. <laughs> That's good. I'm going to say that from now on wherever I go. I'm on a certain spectrum. 
I'm somewhere on the spectrum of confidence. We'll, we we'll figure out where before this conversation is through. That's right. Wow, I, uh, right. we've added to your like lexicon of, of phrases. I'm yeah, sure. All right, I'm we'll just honored. check the box of oh, yeah. successful podcasts. It's nice I'm to like meet one of those you, David. Little crabs on the bottom of the ocean. That, like, I'm always grabbing stuff and awesome. it almost from up from every conversation. <laughs> just a little walk in junkyard. Yeah, that's awesome. Great. Uh, okay, so Daniel's going to read something to you. It's mm, it's okay. kind of your introduction, and then you can you can give. Okay, a, cool. Hi, so, uh, David McRaney. You are a science journalist and creator of the blog, podcast, and internationally best-selling book, You Are Not So Smart. You cut your teeth as a news newspaper reporter in the American South, and since then have been an editor, photographer, voiceover artist, television host, journalism teacher, and tornado survivor. You produced The Green Couch Sessions, a TV show about the music of the Deep South, and you recently wrote, produced, and recorded a six-hour audio documentary exploring the history of the idea and the word genius. Before all that, you did a little construction, sold some leather couches, uh, leather, leather coats, and owned two pet stores. Your recent work focuses on scientists who study the psychology of reasoning, decision-making, and self-delusion. Your second book, You Are Now Less Dumb, was released in 2013. And your third book, How Minds Change, comes out in 2022. How Minds Change explores why we believe how to persuade the limits of reasoning, the power of groupthink, and demonstrate and demonstrates the rare but transformative circumstances under which minds can change. You are known for a quick sense of humor, compassionate heart, keen curiosity, and have been described as a self-delusion expert and psychology nerd whose mind is expansive, surprising, and big-hearted. You believe in rising to the occasion of life with empathy, debunking personal delusions, and challenging your fellow humans to question their motives. Welcome, David McGraney. Oh, wow. I want to put that, I want to record that. I want to take this recording you just made of that introduction, and I'm going to, every time I meet someone new, just press play on that. Awesome. Yeah. Can you get comfortable? I know it's usually a one-second thing, but just, can you give me three minutes? Yeah, yeah. Daniel, Daniel's, uh, he might have found his niche. I mean, this might be, this is your sweet spot. No, I'll right send him an invoice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's That's whole, it's all your writing. That's I just the whole group. Writing we invite people on, write their bios and charge them. Pitch for my side hustle. <laughs> okay. That's good. Uh, all that's that good. Ac accurate uh, on a spectrum of, uh, of of certainty and degrees of uh, of humility. Yes, those are all things that actually happened. It's on the spectrum of competence. Yeah. yeah. Welcome, David McRaney. Oh, man. So nice Thank you so much. So nice yeah. to, to meet you both. I listened to uh, one of your episodes and was delighted. Did you? Uh, I was like, oh, these dudes know what they're doing. Uh, sometimes <laughs> sometimes you get invited to something, you're like, oh, yeah, this is just sort of one of those chit-chat shows where they're going to like uh, lean back. Uh, but uh, I, I enjoyed how engaged you were with your guests and, uh, and, the, and the quality of the guests and the values that you present. It's really cool. So mm. I like your work. That yeah, means man. a lot, man. I mean, it means uh, I, I, I feel like we could say the exact same thing about you and appreciate all those kind words. And we're, we've been excited. Oh, like, we've we've yeah, been be like tough. stoked and excited about getting this put together. This, this conversation means something to us. It, it's, uh, it, it, you, <clears throat> I've been listening to one of your books. He's been listening to another one. We, we both independent of each other took in some of your content and I just, you're doing things that are very aligned and attuned with things that are close to our heart, our mind, and just our path in this life, you know? Cool. And, Thank you for coming on here. Really humbled. Curious, which yeah. episode did you listen to? Or, or uh, here, let me pull it up. Uh, I let's see. It was um, Heather Roddy. 
Really? Awesome. I would not have guessed that. That's well, cool. now you know a little bit about, about my dirt, my religious. Upbringing. I did. I, that was the best thing about it is I was like, oh, this, oh. I, got, I got some dirt on these dudes now. So uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, <laughs> the self-delusion thing is basically my full-time job. It's like trying to unwrap another yeah. layer of that within myself. My religious. That's the best. That's yeah. the path. That is the path. I hope everybody eventually uh, finds themselves on at some point. So oh, I'm glad man. you're there. Do you? What, yeah. So no. Yeah. I mean, uh, the, I feel like because of the internet in particular, the 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 dissemination of wild information. It's is it hard do you, in in your expert mind? Do you think it's harder than ever to unwrap from delusion? Because we, we have so much access to like quick hit, like high hitting endorphin producing information that makes us feel right and, and belong. Um, so this is going to be a weird answer. Uh, yeah. First of all, I'm very optimistic. Uh, and oh, that's good. I, I don't, I think that we're, that things are better than they've ever been in this regard, but mm. they're more complicated than they've ever been in this regard at the same time. Mm. The use, we used to have information gatekeepers for most of human history. So either you had the monk who came through your village and they were, the, they were the one who could read and show you stuff, or you had a priest class who was telling you, you know, what the truth of the universe was. Uh, and then once we had academies, then you had an academic class who uh, they could be experts in specific things and somebody else could uh, make their food and stuff like that. So there's always been like these information gatekeepers who mm -hmm. they were the ones who had these arguments. They were the ones who had these debates. They were the ones who were surrounded by too much information and were battling with each other over identity and in-group, out-group and status and reputation, all that kind of stuff. And they're the ones who would get locked into ideologies. And then while everybody else, you know, had to deal, had to deal with the, uh, the practical part of being a person. Mm -hmm. And they had no vested interest in anything except some political things that they also had no access to because there was a political class that kept them out of uh, those debates. Yeah. So it's only been in the last oh. you know, few hundred years that uh, there's been a, a, a democratic surge of information where people can, uh, and, what's, and then you know, over the course of the last just uh, three generations, the inclusion of uh, people who have been excluded even from that, you know, whether it's uh, LGBT people or women or uh, people of color like this, it's incredible how we just have been all, every, we are just now all being pulled into this thing that has been promised since the enlightenment. And once you get social media and smartphones and they're cheap and the internet is cheap and it's accessible to everyone, what we're experiencing here in the last like six years last uh, maybe decade is yeah. something completely new, which is everybody's, a, everybody's part of the conversation. And if everybody's part of the conversation, then we're all going to argue the way that academics and philosophers used to argue. And a lot of times people aren't aware that these are arguments that people have already had, or these are yeah. sort of debates that are ancient. And that's one of the things I love. I love to see on Reddit, on Facebook, on Twitter, people having philosophical arguments, and they're not even aware of the genealogy of the argument that they're having. Like wow. they're having an argument that people were having 2000 years ago. But they're it's they're having it now anew as if it's uh it's fresh to them and they feel like it came just from them and it, because you know we're all very similar when it comes to our brains and our reaction to the world around us mm. and that's what's happening is you have this fragmented multidimensional epistemic chaos that has been introduced into the lives of for people who normally or who traditionally never had access to that sort of argument space and we're just going to play it out we're going to have to go through a few generations probably mm. of uh of weirdness. 
but everyone is is slowly bootstrapping into a literacy uh, and a familiarity with not just the technology, but the the ideas and the argumentative frameworks that come out of being yeah. introduced to lots and lots of ideas. Yeah. So it's going to break a lot of stuff before mm-hmm. uh, it settles. And yeah. there's going to be something new on the other side of it. And that's just, that's the history of all technological upheaval. We, we just never have had this much access to each other's internal lives and opinions before. Yeah. And it's kind of like the, um, it's like the lapel camera effect, but like for ideas, you know, you never, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of the behavior we've seen from police that has risen to like the top of public consciousness is behavior that has been happening since there's been police, but now we're seeing it and, and having conversations about it. Yeah. The same thing is happening for just anything. Like uh, if you, if, if a certain book comes out, it used to be uh, only a very small handful of people would argue over the merits of that book. Now sure. all of us are arguing over the merits of that book, even those of us who may not never read it. That's a new <laughs> thing, and and that, and I. So yeah, it's wonky yeah. right now, especially if you have a particular value system or an idea or a political yeah. stance or an identity that's being challenged. Yeah. Um, but on the other side of that, almost always is it sorts itself out. Like brains are really good at being knocked into each other and arguing their way toward a uh, a a better worldview that incorporates both sides so you get a three-dimensional view of it instead of just this person's right or this person's right what usually is true is neither person is is right or wrong there's a third thing a higher truth or a deeper truth they need to get to and do you think that 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 because this uh these conversations are being exposed it they wouldn't cause them to be had more and that that's going to exponentially increase the progress we make through these conversations i think so i really do i mean it's 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 uh your mileage may vary because it's some things, <laughs> some things seem to happen very quickly and some things uh, take longer, usually because there's vested interest, right? Usually someone's yeah. money or prestige, reputation, position in society is being threatened. And then that's the thing that takes the, the argument has other motives behind it than the truth. Uh, we, are, we don't always pursue accuracy. In fact, we very rarely pursue accuracy as our number one motivation. Uh, our number one motivation is almost always reputation management. And, uh, but we're very good at uh, justifying and rationalizing our positions and our conclusions as if we're arguing for the truth. But usually what we're arguing for is our reputation amongst trusted peers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it takes a while for that to sort itself out. But I don't know if you've had this experience, like, um, like you get on Twitter and you, or you get on Facebook or any kind of social media and you start to write something out and then you get a little ways into it and go, uh, this is stupid. <laughs> you get a little ways into it. Go, wait, I'm wrong, because <laughs> yeah. because you're thinking about yeah. the audience, right? You're thinking yeah. about all the people who are, and you're already engaging in the argument as you're presenting the argument. You're yeah. imagining how it's going to be tear, torn apart, and sometimes that uh, prevent that makes you go, "No, I'm not going to put this out there." That's uh, right. that's happening at scale, right? That's happening yeah. across everyone who is presenting things out there. And that happens more often the more you are exposed to other people's reasoning, because oftentimes you will see on the sidelines, you'll see people having a debate over something that you have would, you may have had a position on that issue um, prior to being a spectator to the argument that has been changed by the argument itself. And and that's happening at scale across all of human experience right now, every continent. I feel like Mm -hmm. that um, when we started this podcast, the reason for personally why I wanted to participate was to build articulation around all of this, these conversations that are going on. And there's something about it being recorded that 
puts just enough pressure um, and know it, knowing it's for posterity and it's going to, we're not going to delete things. It's going to be out there. It just makes it meaning. It makes it matter enough for me. And it brings out a little bit better part of me. And not only, I think a little better part as I work through it, but also the ground that I, that I personally, and I think this is true for you too, Ron, make in these arguments by building that articulation, I, it sticks more because mm-hmm. we're going to wrap it out again with another person from another little bit of an angle. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I was kind of just a little, my like scheme, you know, but it fucking <laughs> yeah. worked. Like, yeah. <laughs> I, like I feel better, you know, <laughs> holy shit, this has worked. <laughs> it's totally. Yeah. I was like, Oh my gosh, I was right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I really believe in this. Um, in my new book that we, uh, uh, I spent a lot of time talking about, um, you know, we evolved to the reason we, uh, can change our minds because we evolved to, to, we there's a group level uh, um, selective pressure that's taking that's that's working on us. Right, there, there's a reason if we couldn't change our minds, we wouldn't have, be able to argue because there would be no point in it, right? Mm, the the idea is that we uh, we we get to the truth by banging our heads together, and sometimes that truth is a is a culturally established truth, but huh. sometimes it's a very hardcore epistemic. I mean, not epistemic, uh, empirical truth. Um, I think one of the best examples of this for me is uh, if I can go on a, a slight tangent is I love flat earthers. They're my, they're my favorite current group <laughs> awesome. um, for, uh, for how minds change. I spent time with 9-11, 9-11 truthers. I went wow. to Westboro Baptist church and, and wow. went to their, went to their uh, Valentine's day services. Uh, I went to, uh, um, I spent time with people in anti-vax communities before COVID was the yeah. was sort of what anti-vax meant, um, and all sorts of other communities. And it was with the flat earthers where things really kind of like flat earthers were a real gift because flat Earth is apolitical mostly, and uh, and it's not very uh, it's it's the stakes seem low there for the for the for the outsider who's looking into it if we're talking about 9-11 truthers you're going to get some of your conspiratorial thinking wrapped up in yeah, that right if you're even anti even with anti-vaxxers there's going to be points that anti-vaxxers make that will resonate with people who consider yeah. themselves pro-science or something yeah, yeah. um flat earther g- gives, gets you a whole new place to talk about these oh. ideas right because most people are like yo the there's, there's not flat, right? So, right? so how can this be? But there's a real example of what we were just talking about, right? The um, these are arguments we already had. These are debates that we already had. But they had, they were, they were those there were debates that were taking place. In That's a great a, example. Yes, perfect. These were debates yeah. that were taking place within a privileged class of yeah. information gatekeepers. Huh. It was with, among priests, among um, scientists, among the academy, and then among astronomers. I mean, it wasn't just you know. You can go buy a telescope and start playing with astronomy right now, today on Amazon. It could be here in, in like, hopefully, right, even before Christmas. Yeah. Um, if you're in, you know, 1703, no, that's not going to be who's playing with the telescope, right? At, at like, you know, at some point there were only like three telescopes. So the the debates we were having were have have the, the pool has spread. Well, there are people in our modern era who are using smartphones and have access to the internet. And uh, are driving cars that have computers inside them, helping you determine how much you know, gas is being injected into the uh, fuel streams. Yet, they're like, "Hmm, when I look at the horizon, it sure does look flat." And uh, and they have these anxieties about who is in control of everything. They have mm-hmm. these these have these. They don't have a whole lot of trust in yeah. government. They don't have a whole lot of trust in 
doctors and institutions. They don't have a whole lot. They think of science as an institution, not a practice. And they imagine things like, uh, they think about things like the nuclear bomb experiments and like the Bikini Atoll. There's all sorts yeah. of reasons to have these feelings. These are not totally unjustifiable feelings. And then they think of something as like NASA as a combination of all this. It's military, mm. it's government, it's science, it's all these institutions. There's a, it evokes a lot of fear. And um, I'm sure you, we, you know all about confirmation bias, but I like to think of it as a, the sort of the goggles you put on when you have anxiety about something, when you have a negative affect, as they would say in psychology. So imagine you're in a tent and you hear a sound. It's late, you're camping in the woods and you hear a sound and you think, that sounds like it could be a bad thing. And so you take out your flashlight and you go looking for confirmation that the anxieties that you're feeling are justified and they are plausible for your trusted peers that, they, they, that other people would think that you were justified in going to look for that sound. And if you're in the woods uh, looking for a bear and you don't find the bear, uh, you go back to what you're doing, but you go looking for confirmation. If you don't get it, you go back to what you're doing. If you have an anxiety about something and you go to the internet looking for uh, confirmation that your anxiety is justified, you will find some people who are, who are going to show you something that says you're totally justified for being freaked out about this thing. You're totally justified in having this fear. Mm -hmm. And then you're going to start having conversations with them and you're going to, some of those people, this is the iterative process, a small percentage of the large number of people doing that will find themselves talking to that group over and over again. They might end up meeting each other. They might end up going to conventions. They might end up getting on their on their specific dating apps. They're only for that group of people, and now now you're in a tribe. Now you're now yeah. all the things that make you a primate are going to get uh, thrown into this, and now you're in a conspiratorial community, right? Totally. So what I love about that process to come back to the fact that this is just a, a reiteration of something we've been doing forever, but it's including a new category of people who were excluded from it. There are people who have all sorts of reasons to think. Uh, you know, one of the central dogmas in Flat Earth is that uh, we sent up astronauts uh, or cosmonauts and they saw that the Earth was flat. And they were like, oh, no, all of science is a lie. And so they had to come down and create this mass conspiracy to, wow. to hide it from us. Right. And then it schisms out from there. And there are many schisms in the Flat Earth community. Some people think it's right. a, a dome, like it's a snow globe that was created by aliens. Some people think it's, uh, you know, it's a, one of many disks. There are all sorts of. That's uh, the one that you believe. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Right, Tiny. but on what the I back love about, of a you know a tortoise, in tortoise. Space. Yeah. that's right. There, it's, uh, what I love about all those is that in their conception of what it might be, once you say you can't trust science at all, their conceptions of what it might be match up very almost completely one to one with all the ancient conceptions of what it could be. Mm -hmm. And then since they won't trust, since they don't trust science, they don't trust the institution of science, but they do but they do want to test their hypotheses, they end up doing experiments to see if the earth is flat or not that are identical to the experiments that people did when we first figured this Jeez, out. And I, and it's just time is a flat circle, right? This is what's happened. This is what happens when people who've been excluded from the conversation join the conversation. Some of them are going to have to go back through everything again. So to answer the first question you asked in a very long and rambling way, which is uh, what I want to do. Um, <laughs> It's usually wrong. Yeah, you're, yeah, you're yeah, amongst good scary. company. <laughs> it's, it's chaotic and weird. I get it. There's so many conspiracy theories and all of a sudden UFOs are back and Flat Earth has mm. conventions and uh, there are people who, based off of the thinking that the, the, in, in the 
conspiratorial mindsets have led to things like QAnon and the insurrection and, and anti-vaxxing and all sorts of anti-masking. This is just the out. This is just what happens when everybody gets access to the all the information wow, at their fingertips awesome. and has to go back through what we what we used to what was being done. It's just a reiteration of what people did forever ago. And there's that thing where people say, uh, "I can't believe it's 2021 and people are still X." Like I, yeah. I do yeah. not. <laughs> that is not Makes how sense. I feel about things. Having worked on, having written about this stuff and mm-hmm. uh, and hung out with the people who study it for so long, uh, I've I'm almost completely the inverse of that i'm like uh because you know we didn't discover um vitamin c uh in, you know we didn't like figure out what that was to like the 1930s you know we didn't uh we didn't know how galaxies galaxies weren't like something that the average person understood till like well into the 20th century like i often think like i can't um i can't believe it's uh 2021 and we're not doing x is what yeah. usually how it feels to me because we just figured out almost everything that's common to our like everyday conversation like the three of us here having this conversation in 100 years ago having a similar life but 100 years ago there's no way we'd have this these this kind of knowledge this these ideas this these philosophical concepts we would not be able to navigate reality the way that we can navigate reality today. plus that that re uh, what you're saying um and the kind of you know, 10,000 foot perspective that it, it gives on that everything that's going on, it affirms that it's happening, you know, and it says, no, this is, this is part of nature. This is part of the natural process of humans potentially evolving in their ideas and arguments and thoughts and awareness, blah, blah, blah. And it's just nice because there's, there's this, I like personally where I stand on the conspiracy theory conversation, but you're providing a missing piece that, for me uh, where on an emotional level, I can, I can accept and embrace that it's happening and that the conversation is happening with all of its ugliness and challenge and divisiveness. I think it's great, dude. Yeah. It's, I, I, oddly enough, it, it makes me feel optimistic. I, I, yeah, I, it's, I feel it's, the same strange, way. it's a strange take, but that's how I feel about it. Yeah. I appreciate the, the optimism because I was, I, I, I am by nature, uh, moodier, um, you know, have a, <laughs> have a, have a darker outlook. You don't see, I, you, uh, give me the floor damn it um <laughs> i because i came out of a and, and still man like my accent is evangelical like if i if like my brain and my my words are constantly being filtered through the evangelical culture that i grew up in and and i don't know even how much my day-to-day thinking is still resolving that like i i can't remember if i said it with roddy or or with you but you and i have had a million conversations around shame that is my like default mode of feeling like that's how I just feel Mm -hmm. about myself and it comes from you know childhood of being told that I'm no good and and it wasn't I didn't have parents who are abusive I I grew up in a church culture that said you are no good and the only thing that makes you good is the blood of Jesus and and you had to like Put that quarter in the machine and like hit the hit the uh, arm to you know get the things to spin and hopefully you finally hit it that one time you said the right prayer or did the right thing and jackpot and the shame's gone but for millions of us the shame never leaves and i hear, I hear you man i hear you. I, grew up, I grew up in the same sort of environment i uh did you? I, a yeah. southern baptist and uh the uh in fact when i went to westboro uh and i i wrote this in the book um uh, the thing that I really, I went there expecting all sorts of weird stuff. Yeah. But what I got was uh, an experience that was identical to every single time I went to church when I was a kid. Mm. And so the thing that was most unsettling was that it was familiar. 
Yeah, and and right. the, only, the only thing Westboro has is a gimmick. You know, they came up with the, yeah. with, the, with, the with signs and a way to like, you know, uh, play with the media and, and manipulate. And, and um, you know, they, they they learned how to do a PR game, but otherwise, it's just a, it's just like any other Baptist church that's, that's mm-hmm. operating in the United States. My the church that from my childhood probably agrees with everything Westboro has to say. They but they just don't feel like they have the ability to say so openly without being uh, without getting some sort of uh, retribution from society. Yeah. Westboro doesn't care. Like they figured out a way to, you know, they went to the Supreme Court to argue their case. So they they found a way to be openly uh, bigoted in a way that yeah. other others other parts of uh, Southern Baptist culture are keep sort of uh, in the shadows to, to to prevent them from being ostracized. But they that's yeah. I mean, I grew up in the same thing, man. I um, David, can I ask uh, you a question yeah, about good. that? Um, so you're you're you've given your life over a significant portion to it uh, of it to um, changing, uh, understanding how minds change, how people change, how mm. I'm assuming how you can change. You, you probably absolutely, yeah, you know? sure. And if you if you empathize with what Ronald experienced, how has your I'm assuming you put effort into changing that part of yourself? Uh, have you? How has that gone? What, What's that like? Can you give me some pointers to release that <laughs> shame? That I'm trying know. to wing my boy I was, here. I was washing dishes the other day. I was like, God damn it. This shame is like trying to sneak in. Like get the shame off the yeah. fucking plate. <laughs> my fingers can't get clean enough. Uh, yeah, I can help supporters. In fact, uh, uh, if you want, we can even go through one of the techniques I learned from the experts. Uh, we're oh, do it yeah, bit let's do it. Yeah. Um, let me give you some foundation first, because it's very important that we everything is... Uh, consensual and your agency is absolutely top top priority right but the um the way my personal uh fall from grace or whatever you would call it came from um i um i'll make this a real, really short story i i was i was strangely fortunate because my dad was a vietnam vet and he had uh for reasons that I, he has never explained to me he didn't like to go to church but my mom did and she felt like the pressure of um the family wondering how come you know like i if you can't your husband and your son can't both not go uh to church so she was really wanted me to go so we went um and i would go to vacation bible school and it was usually a nice lady who was showing us pictures from a, one of those uh little children's um bible books and we were talking about noah's ark and uh she, i just raised my hand i said how come all the animals didn't eat each other and she her answer to that was we don't ask those questions and then she moved on and so i just felt embarrassed i wasn't really uh that was the only feeling i really had as a kid it was my child my child mind just felt embarrassed for being told i can't ask questions so i went home and told my dad what had happened and his reaction to that was if you don't want to go back you don't have to anymore and i was like hey i just didn't want to uh take up my summers so uh I, and so what happened was i was fortunate enough to be removed from the week to week of going to church and that that opened me up to other things then on the other side of that was probably this is probably not a good idea for your kids but there was i was in a household where like there was no you could watch or listen to anything you wanted to like you know rated r or whatever watch it and i uh, probably was exposed to a lot of stuff i shouldn't have been in an early age but um because of that, I got exposed to people like George Carlin and uh, Bill Hicks and stuff like that when I was Sense of humor. really young. <laughs> and, uh, and then that just opened me up to um, 
uh, also being an only child in the deep South, uh, I had access to a lot of books and stuff. And my, my, and my dad was a big hacker. So we went and got on, we were like one of the first families to get on the internet. So uh, I was huh. just exposed to a lot of wow. stuff, exposed to a lot of challenging ideas. And that's yeah. how I got into it. Um, the, but relating to like what you're talking about, this feeling of shame, this feeling of, uh, yeah, let's tell, let's think about what that feeling really is, right? Like what is, what would be the evolutionary, uh, why would this be a trait that is common to all human brains? Yeah. Why would it have not been selected out over That's time? Like, what is yeah. it? What is its? What is the adaptive function of shame? Mm. Uh, Keep us I, safe from something. Yeah. Yeah. I'd like to hear your thoughts on it before I like wax poetic. <laughs> Let me answer. I got this. You one. got it. No, <laughs> I, I mean, okay. If the adaptive function, so if, if we, if I assume that most of the, congregational outcomes of humanity is for the betterment of humanity in other words we survive and grow right then there then there could possibly be a, a chemical mechanism within us that helps point to the things that aren't good for the whole right so mm -hmm. if i you know hit my friend mm -hmm. and that's not good for the for the gander Mm -hmm. And I feel bad, like there's a physical chemical reaction of, of, a, of a pain response in myself, mm -hmm. a kind of pain response. For sure. Yeah. And therefore, it is like a, a barometer of sorts of like, is this good for me or is this good for the tribe? Sort of right. speak. That's, my, that's my best guess. Sometimes it is good to hit the other person. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. in a protective way, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Right. Then, there, then there's the shame of, I hit my friend when I was seven, and yeah. that shame, and I said I was sorry, but his dad said I'm never allowed to play with him again. This is true, by the way. And, um, and then years later, I think about that and still feel shame. Exactly. Why? It's, yeah. The question comes, uh, my mind is... I get why, at least in very rough terms, and I, I can tell you've got cocky loaded and much more nuanced. Like, <laughs> no, I'm interested. I, I, Thank, I'm always interested to hear this answer. Yeah. yeah okay. Thanks for yeah. kind of letting us hack it out here. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I can see pretty easily, I'm probably missing something, why shame would exist. Yeah. I'm more curious, why has the ability for it to be selected out more easily, not part of our life? Like, mm. why does it hang on like a bastard? Like, it's so, it seems so, one of the most intense experiences I have is, and mine isn't around a religion, it's usually around moving my body and kind of being humorous or dancing and then getting caught, you know, mm -hmm. someone seeing, I'm like being myself and then someone sees me surprisingly and I like, and it, it's fucking intense, man. Mm -hmm. And I, I feel like I have awareness around it. Like, mm -hmm. why can't I just, just choose something else? That's why I don't understand why, why don't we have that ability to choose when we know that shame is not serving us? That's a great question. And a question that I talk to all kinds of people about yeah. all the time. I mean, uh, folks who are in every respect, good citizens, right? Like they are, they are our partners, they're parents, they are uh, upstanding employees or business owners. And yet there's this constant specter of shame um, that, you know, like there's, you know, there's a, a a quiver full of of reasons like they're they they are seeking the the love and affection from their parents that they felt like they never got um 
you know, they got caught doing something as a kid that like just made an imprint and they're still trying to make up for it. And I, it's almost like there's these certain feedback loops in our brains. The interesting thing though, is like, I think some cultures, and I heard this through another podcast with the writers of Ted Lasso explaining that in the, the Netherlands, this feeling of shame is like, is, is actively pruned out of conversations and relationships. So they, there's a word for it. Yeah, there's a word for it. Like, oh, you're experiencing that thing. Oh, don't worry about that thing. Like, mm-hmm. it, it's like, it's like, does that allow them to not experience it? It sounds like it more because it's, it's a kind of a cultural, oh, like, hey, together, just... we're going to decide that this is not that fun to experience. And it kind of like, you know, blows the the fun out of the party. So let's just less, a, about less it. attention on it. Kind of yeah. lets it. Anyways. Okay. The, that's, the... that's our stab. No, I like what you said. That, that reminded me of something. I might not be able to pull it up quickly enough. I, I, I went, oddly enough, I, when I, I debated a flat earther in, um, in Sweden, uh, and I was introduced to some of those ideas you're talking about for the first time there. Uh, and I was trying to remember, I think I took a note. This is uh, my life. Yes, here it is. Uh, um, the law of Jante, if you ever want to look it up, uh, J-A-N-T-E. Uh, this is similar to what you're talking about. Um, in Sweden, they have, yeah, they have culturally um, uh, sacralized some concepts around. Uh, sacralized? What is that? Yeah, they, they've made it uh, sacred to oh, not to right. feel or not feel shame in certain situations. Um, they've made it sacred. They've realigned what is and what is not important when it comes to how do we get along as a people, uh, as a group, versus how do we express our individuality amongst the group in ways that uh, a North American society, you know, United States society is, has sort of uh, rebooted a lot of that just, you know, in the 1700s. And there's a real urge to be an individual at the expense of the group. And we're still having that uh, mm-hmm. tension today. Like, how do I be, a, how do I be an incredible individual while at the same time also uh, creating value for the collective? It's a, it's a, it's a, it's something that American society doesn't have, it doesn't, hasn't had as much experience with uh, as some of these societies from the, uh, that region, is, the Netherlands, is, Sweden, I- Iceland. Is part of the, I just really quick, I know you know a little bit, uh, is yeah. part of, uh, I'm thinking about that thing that you were saying about a lot of these conversations that are having where we got to go back in time. Like, I wonder, because now I'm thinking of shame more as oh, yeah, a, a yeah, cultural yeah, yeah. instead of it being everyone on earth is experiencing it's like, okay, right. pull the blinders off. You're part of a culture. Maybe it's up for that culture. Right. Up for this civilization I, as per the last 200 I think it, it probably is in some thing because the, I can't remember if I said at the beginning of the conversation before David came on or, or what, but it was the, the, the phrase, um, um, gosh, what did I say earlier? uh disintegration dissolve deconstruction deconstruction the phrase deconstruction is is very popular right now especially Mm -hmm. amongst evangelicals you're you're i'm going to guess you're kind of like square in the middle or at the beginning of the gen x group uh yeah yeah uh uh, born in 77 okay so or 1980 i would got right super gen x stuff yes okay so i'm i i claim gen x even though it's debatable whether i am or not i just prefer it sure, sure, sure. <laughs> but i feel cusp. like i feel like gen x my sister's 10 years older than me she was born in 1969 she didn't descend she didn't de- deconstruct her faith she just was like fuck that i'm out done 
And then the generation, might be my generation or the one just slightly after thought, oh, wait a second, I've been harmed and I've been uh, maligned. And, you know, there's all, they have a, a whole list of things that they want to talk about, mm-hmm. but they also want to continue to have some kind of sacred practice or ritual in their life. Mm-hmm. And that's where I think it's a little bit of a, uh, of a distinction between the previous uh, generation. And so, so, but I think that's now, now up for grabs. It's like, well, you know, we talked to Brenda Davis, we talked to Dr. Tracy Hunt, you know, all these people are like, we, we are going to make some room for some mystery. And we are also going to unhook the shame we feel because of the cultural teachings that we receive through our religions in particular. Well, it seemed, and yeah, I, I know you were still in the middle of your answer. Uh, the, you said that there's a lot of old, like flat earth conversations that are back up. They have to be revisited. Uh, currently. Yeah, re litigated, I guess is a good way to put it. Yeah. And That's I, I just, I just thought, it, I wondered yeah. if the shame thing, maybe it's exactly, exactly the same thing. It's exactly the same thing. Every idea we have of ourselves has a genealogy to it. Right. I like to think of, I I'm, Right now, I've been jamming out on this idea of articulating the ineffable, right? Um, we are all trying to put words to things that we're feeling that may, and language of any of any sort is a really low resolution way of, of understanding something. Yeah. But, and so it, we require, we, we need similes and metaphors and yeah, stories. Yeah. Awesome. We, need, we need multiple ideas and poetry and, and music. We have to do so many things to articulate, you know. Yeah. But once it's done, once someone has articulated it to a level of satisfaction, we can then take that and use it as a building block for a next level of articulation. So um, uh, there's philosophers like Immanuel Kant who who like gave us words like um, angst. And it's not like people weren't feeling angst. Once you have one word that that is is like a suitcase that you open up and all the clothes fly out of it, like it has all of the ideas associated with angst, one little word, and we all agree that that's what that word means. I can now create sentences with the word angst in them that themselves will explore an even higher level of abstraction. Mm -hmm. And then now I can condense that down into once we all agree on what that sentence is, it could be a poem or a song that we've all listened to. I can say it's, it's like a... Like when Groundhog Day came out, and people can say, "This feels like I feel like I'm in Groundhog Day." Like that, yeah. just saying that requires that you've seen the movie and you understand it. And I can build upon that an even higher, like com- more complex concept. So that's articulating the ineffable. And as we do that, we get to higher and higher levels of abstraction. We can imagine really bizarre ideas. Um, but uh, everyone is doing this at a different rate, and everyone is doing this at a different level of privilege. And one thing that we didn't have in your sister's generation was you got to think of the media environment that she was exposed to. Like um, the, uh, this is where I would urge people to listen, to read uh, Marshall McLuhan's uh, machine. I think it's called the machines of man. That's where the medium is is the message comes from. Uh, You know, you can trace the history of uh, information technology upheavals. And with each one of those, you get a supreme upheaval in our understanding of ourselves and our, and, so you get like, uh, you know, you get the written word and the printing press, this monumentally changes how we are able to interact with one another and spread ideas around. But then you trace that all the way through, you get to radio, to television, to, to movie theaters, VCRs, and then eventually, you know, you've got cable television, and then, you know, you hit the internet. And like, you know, you know this is happening uh, when you're in the middle of one of these, when things like, uh, 
You notice how decades don't really mean anything anymore. And yeah. everybody's like, when was 1970? 30 years ago for everybody. Uh, and, yeah. then, and then like, uh, and like, if I would ask you, like, you remember the, like the Harlem shake uh, or, or uh, Gangnam style? Like yeah. if I would ask you, when was that? Like what year was that? It just feels like it's a part of this blurry yeah, amorphous yeah. nether thing because we all got the internet roundabouts yeah. uh, early 2000s. And once oh. that happened, Everything was available all the time, and the cultural demarcations of 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 uh, generations as like decades. Like you can think of music of the '90s, music of the '80s. There's a flavor to that. The music to the '70s, movies of the '60s. That was because when uh, you moved into another decade and that stuff wasn't selling as well anymore, you go into a record store or a video store, and those weren't on the shelves, and they were in the collections of your of your siblings uh, or your parents, and that's where you'd find it, but you had to move on to something new. And that stuff just sort of went into the memory hole until eventually the people who did remember it, you know, they died. The people in the thirties were like, no, the good music was bop, 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 bop. Yeah. <laughs> but they're yeah. gone. They <laughs> yeah. leave us. Nothing leaves us mm -hmm. now. Like everything is part of the conversation. You might, uh, there might be something that happens in current, um, like when that boat got st stuck in, in the canal, like yeah. there are people who would take that and throw it into the meme blender. And in meme space, you'd have memes going back to Star Wars, memes going back to, uh, you know, the Godfather are being thrown into the conversation about this current event. Yeah. And we're just in this big blur space, right? Yeah. So what I would imagine is happening like in this, in a evangelical uh environment is the same thing that happened when if you were a hardcore fundamentalist christian when um the planets were uh, became established science where you have to say like hey there is a the, jupiter is a thing and uh and the this is what the moon actually looks like you have to incorporate that into your faith in a way that doesn't disturb the core values of the faith the core truths of the faith yeah. And then this gets harder and harder the more stuff we shovel into the into what we accept as true. When some things are still like on the verge of of, of being accepted, just evolution itself is something that yeah. in some fundamentalist Christian communities is accepted, and others it's not, depending on how much they feel like there's a friction with their core values. Um, I would assume that's probably true of the difference between you and your sister, right? Like she, there was just simply there were fewer. Uh, challenging voices and challenging ideas and challenging elites during the time that she was establishing the yeah. fundamentals of her construct of reality than what you were experiencing when you were coming up. And now if you're like a Zoomer, like the amount of inputs you're getting from around, like the the level of critical thinking you have to apply to what is and is not true uh, based off of what's being presented to you on a day-to-day -day basis is much <laughs> higher than it was for us. I, I know people who are around about my age, who only kind of just started getting online in the last couple of years. And I watched them making the same early mistakes where wow. they believe everything and they yeah. fall prey to stuff and phishing attacks <laughs> yeah. work on them. That's awesome. <laughs> so, I think that's also yeah, true yeah, with, yeah. with faiths. I think yeah. that's true with faiths as well as we move into it. Um, I, 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 will, I will play with that technique with you in it, but I want to introduce an idea for, that, that, make, that can tie all that together that we've been talking yeah. about. It's called um, assimilation and accommodation. Mm -hmm. This is a a very fundamental aspect of um, the psychology of knowledge or the psychology of learning, um, assimilation and accommodation. So as you grow up and as you learn things from your um, 
parents and your peers and your and your culture, uh, it all sort of establishes the baseline of your reality. And then you will be confronted with new novel information as you move through the world, new experiences, uh, other voices telling you things. And at each point when something is novel and ambiguous, you will need to incorporate that novelty and disambiguate that uh, the, the ambiguous using your priors, as they say in philosophy. So your priors would just be your prior assumptions or the prior probabilities that you have established about what's going to happen. If I, if I drop an egg on the ground, what's the probability that it's going to fly away uh, and go into the clouds? You know that the probability is low, even if you're not thinking in numbers, you are thinking in the probabilistic terms of that's probably not going to do that. Uh, if it did do that, you would have to go, you'd be shocked and you would have to uh, incorporate the fact that this has happened in some way. Um, same thing is true for uh, the uh, pro your prior experiences with something. If every time you've ever um, tasted asparagus and made you go like that, you will assume that you're going to have the same experience the next time you, you taste it, right? So assimilation accommodation comes out of the work of uh, Jean Piaget. Uh, who is famous for the experiments with children with all that where he was like, uh, you know, if I put water into this glass, this very, if I take this very, very uh, tall glass and I pour it in this very short glass, what's going to happen? You know, and after there's a certain age where you're able to understand that just because it's tall doesn't mean it has more stuff in it. And he was charting all that because he's trying to understand uh, the, how knowledge structures form and build on each other and in the mind as we grow older. Um, and out of it, he came, he, develop these terms, assimilation, accommodation. So here's the best way I could describe it. If you have a ch small child and you introduce them to a dog for the first time and they ask what it is and you say, that's a dog, what's happening in their brain is something along the lines of they're creating a category, which is non-human, walks on four legs, has hair, dog. And then they see a horse wow. and they'll point at the horse and go, look, dog. That's awesome. So what's happening is they are assimilating. Yeah. They're taking their, their current categor, uh, categorical understanding of reality and applying it to a, a piece of novel, amb ambiguous information. It's non-human. It's on all fours. It's got hair. Seems like it fits in the dog category. Dog. So they are assimilating. Mm -hmm. And then when you say, no, 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 that's not a dog. That's a horse. This is a huge moment in the mind of a child. Like they, they really are expanding the perimeter of their consciousness because they have to add another category to, to uh, subsume both the horse and the dog now they have to create a category of animal yeah, and there can be yeah. many different kinds of animals right yeah that's accommodation so assimilation is what happens when you are confronted with challenging information something that causes you to question your prior understanding of the world and what you try to do is make it fit into yeah. your current understanding yeah accommodation is what happens whenever you are challenged by something and you have to expand your understanding to accommodate this new information and you can see this in, in evangelical groups all the time, but you also see it in political groups all the time. Uh, anytime something where the, the motivation for you to believe it is about maintaining your reputation among mm -hmm. trusted peers right. and avoiding yeah. shame, avoiding yeah. embarrassment, avoiding ostracism, keeping yourself look, looking at like a trustworthy member of that group, you will be really compelled to assimilate. So something comes along like, uh, like dinosaurs, uh, and you're like, yeah. I don't know, dinosaurs makes it seem like all the, the, the timelines of the Bible are, I don't be, you will 
need to come some come up with some way to assimilate it. And I've heard all sorts of things like, you know, those were put there by, uh, you know, God to test our faith. And now, now I can believe in dinosaurs and also not disbelieve in my, what was, is the core to my value structure, right? Because I've assimilated it. I basically said, look, that's a dog as Ed, if a, instead of a horse, right? Ed, but sometimes to accommodate something, you have to turn the switches back all through your belief system and go, well, that's not true. That's not true. That's yeah. not true. Or, or if it's a attitude, that's not good. That's not good. That's bad. That's bad. That's bad. And if it's a value, you have to alter where it goes in the hierarchy of what you think is more important than the other things. So this is something we're always doing at all times, assimilating and accommodating, assimilating and accommodating. Mm -hmm. And you can really see it in uh, modern politics in, in the United States because United States politics is sort of moved into the vacuum created by the secularization of, uh, of our society. You know, there's, uh, it, is, it is serving the function of a religious belief structure uh, amongst people who are feeling the, that slipping through their fingers as something that wow. binds them together as, wow. as a culture. As a side note to that, I've noticed that there's, there's this movement I've seen amongst guys who do quote unquote men's work uh, and they're doubling down on certain things with like that in particular and one of the things i've seen is this new <clears throat> reverence to the declaration of independence <laughs> where got like you can buy it bound in leather you can buy you know it's yeah. like it's this new you know because we've lost religious um <clears throat> points that we used to have and and now it's more secular and we but we still have democracy we have the united states of america and that makes me feel like i belong and how I'm a part of the tribe Look at our founding document. Look at this one thing that's Absolutely. still sacred. Yeah. You keyed right in on it, right? Because that's what is the function of religion anyway? The function of religion is to bind people into groups toward group goals. It's it's mm. to keep us all together. It's a binding structure. Yeah. And uh in absence of it, we'll bind ourselves together using something else because that's what mm. what we need. Uh, so religion sort of rides on top of these uh primate behavior systems, right? And that's what that brings us all the way back around to shame. Yes, I cannot believe I, I got I got I came back. back to it. <laughs> you did it. <laughs> See, uh, all all of those feelings sh just reveal how much of a primate you are. It's primate yeah. psychology. If shame, embarrassment, and everything that goes along with those, if we we all feel it. There's no human in any culture that doesn't feel it. Um, a dog base, feels it. A, it, it. Well, dogs co-evolve with humans, right? Yeah, dogs yeah. feel it, but cats don't. Uh, uh, li lizards and lizards don't feel this, uh, yeah. but dogs co-evolve with humans because they pick up on human um, uh, uh, cues to determine yeah. whether or not they should or shouldn't do something. So they feel some modicum of, of shame, but it's not, not nearly what we feel. And humans feel it in a way that's stronger than a chimpanzee or, or a bonobo uh. or, uh, or a great ape of some kind. So, but it's in all primates and shame, all of those things key onto what the value of it is you're trying to avoid being ostracized you're trying yeah. to avoid being put outside of the group to yep. fend for yourself alone because fending yeah. for yourself alone is death i mean yeah. and pretty much all the way up until recently yeah and especially yeah. in a serengeti or a jungle environment i'm, I'm and, gonna stop you right there because yeah, I, I have to point that paint this picture that he's in my life that he's really describing perfectly and and that was in my mid-20s after i experienced a breakup I wrote my family, my, my mother a letter saying, I'm out. I'm out of the family. I'm out of religion. I'm out. But then I, I, through a series of weird events, I ended up back in the religious culture. And this time, my status was much higher. And this time, my status was 
you know, it, it fit my ego. My ego was like, oh, this is awesome. I fucking love this shit. And I maintained that status here in, in the town I live in Portland for a, a good while. And then it was on a, um, it was actually listening to an ex-evangelical named Rob Bell. Do you know who that guy is? Mm-mm. Interesting fellow. Uh, he was he was essentially kicked out of his own church because he questioned hell. A, a huge mega church in the early 2000s called Mars Hill in, in um, uh, somewhere in Michigan. I'm listening to him talk to a monk named Richard Rohr, and Richard Rohr, who's kind of Catholic, he's kind of been kicked. Like I don't know if the, if the big capital church would accept him anymore, but he's definitely in the spectrum of spiritual. Mm-hmm. And they're talking about Christianity and spirituality and, and how they really aren't, they're not in the middle of those things anymore. They're, they're kind of beyond it all and like in the human experience. And it hit me so hard. Like, it's like, I, I can't live like this anymore. I can't continue to pretend I believe all these things and assimilate into this thing because I want to be accepted. And that was at the core of it. Mm-hmm. I wanted to be accepted. Oh. And, and not only that, you just said it earlier, is you're going to get casted, you're going to get cast out of the group, you're mm-hmm. going to die if you're outside the group. Mm-hmm. And that death for us evangelicals is not just death, it's forever death of the it's, fires of hell. That's a good point. <laughs> Look, sociologist Brooke Harrington told me, yeah, if there was a e equals MC square of social science, it is social death is greater than physical death. Wow. Uh, yeah. If you are given an option between dying, dying physically or dying socially, you will pick physical. If, if you if you are, yeah. if you feel guaranteed that social death is coming, there is a, there are many examples of this. Pretty much war is a good, pretty good example. Yeah. Uh, people are more likely to die in war of, uh, of avoiding right. embarrassment, avoiding shame, avoiding losing valor and honor. Then you know that that's the that's the propensity of like I want to be seen as a trusted member of my group. Mm. Um, there. Right now, people are refusing to get vaccinated and willing to die because if they get the vaccine, what does it sh- what does it what does it demonstrate to their trusted peers? Yeah. They'll be they'll be excommunicated just as you'll be excommunicated from a religion. Anytime the, there's a there's a there's a the there's a possibility of social sanction and at the most extreme ostracism, and if you want to call it being um, excommunicated, even. That's where you see people. That's where the people become most highly motivated to engage in certain behaviors. Wow. The same things you're talking about in uh, a, a fundamentalist church, uh, you can see with like mask wearing, right? Like, what? Yeah. Why? How did masks become politicized? Because the mask is a signal that you are a trusted member of your group, or you're not. And it's the same. It has the same strength no matter which side of that you're on. If you're a hardcore. Uh, American Republican conservative, uh, even if you're so far as to say that you're like a, a, in the Trump world, right? Wearing the mask shows that you have uh, you have you're violating the trust of your peers because they're saying that wearing the mask is not necessary. Uh, you're showing that you do not share their value system somehow. Yeah. On the other side, if you are in uh, San Francisco right now and walking around maskless, just walking into restaurants and you don't care, like that shows that you have violated that value structure. So now it cle- it went from being, it doesn't matter what the facts of the matter are, what it serves, what's motivating people's behavior most is whether or not this is going to lead to them being shamed and ostracized by the mm-hmm. groups that they consider themselves most tied yeah. to. When you were talking about things coming into uh, the... Um, uh, well, I guess in the church or just in, in any large organization that has set values, a set uh, sort of uh, um, 
ideas of what you should and shouldn't do, whether they be moral, spiritual, physical, mm-hmm. and then things come in and happen and then it causes things to get toggled off um, or maybe assimilated uh, or changed in some way. But I like the, just the simplicity of just toggling Turned things off. off, you know? Yeah. Um, are, are you, do you think that that shame, that there's a shame toggle that that something has yet to or is coming in to start to tone that down no no i think we're stuck with that probably for <laughs> we're stuck with that for at least a oh, sweet sweet shame all right there you go Ron. <laughs> but, but we're stuck with that for a couple thousand years but that's the, yeah. but that's okay we're also stuck really? with hunger we're also stuck with hunger yeah. i'm also stuck with my foot's gonna hurt if i bang it against the bo- the the you know if i bang my toe against the side of the couch like shame's that important because that's one of the things that keeps us in the tribe and safe it's a primate theory and we're primates and we can't stop ourselves from being primates so that's not the problem right the problem is not that we experience it the problem is how do we what it sort of self-talk and ideas and cultural concepts will form around that nucleus and become this larger larger concept we we are we are a biopsychosocial entity. So we have biological things that come like we have proteins that DNA uh, drives, and we have brain structures. We have, there is a portion of our brain that is only devoted to recognizing faces. If you get into an accident or you have an aneurysm or something that that damages that portion of the brain, you will no longer be able to recognize faces. We, it is biological. It is something that you are is created by your genes. Like it is a portion of your brain that does this, and so. Our brains can contain have all these different structures that are devoted to certain things, and some of them are devoted to just learning, and some of them have baked in things that we will we will experience. You know that uh, we can't not experience. We will. They, they are things that are evolutionarily part of the substrate of humanity. Then, but we're also uh, psycho. So, which psycho meaning that we have we have minds. Uh, we have yeah. subjective realities, and the subjective reality that we move within is something that is developed through experience and through received wisdom but we're also social and that's where the primate stuff comes and we are we are not only are we are our minds are private personal subjective realities created by biology and by uh the idea space that we've built over time but also the social space we are a social creature and that's where you take problems that are that you whatever culture you you have inherited Whatever problems people were facing, sometimes a thousand years ago, are still mm-hmm. have uh, momentum. They still have, uh, they still have uh, influence. Like there's, I have a there's a great uh, book. It's not a great book. I take that back. And I'm sorry I said that about you, Dove Cohen. <laughs> Dove, Dove Cohen wrote a book that is readable. I wouldn't say it's great, but it has great ideas in it. You don't have to necessarily <laughs> just because he's not a poet. Just because he's not a poet doesn't mean it's not a great book. But um, it's called The Southern Culture of Honor and. Uh, I mentioned it because it has this great experiment in it. Now, I come from the South, so this made a uh, this resonated pretty strongly with me. But they, they they did this great experiment where they had this hallway, and uh, these people had the, these men. They had uh, some blood taken, and then they were supposed to uh, fill out a questionnaire and take it to the end of a hallway. And the trick of the experiment is, in this narrow hallway, there was a door leading to like a lab, and they had an actor who was going to. Uh, come through there and right as you walk past they wouldn't move for you and you had to, to push by them so you would have yeah. to shoulder bump them yeah and when you got when you shoulder bumped this dude he would say to your face asshole and then walk past you yeah and then you would go to the end of the hallway and you would at the end of the hallway you get your blood taken a second time and they would ask you some questions yeah. mm. and the what they found in the study was that they would ask 
people, hey, that guy that you bumped into, what'd you think of that? And the these people were grouped into different groups by how much time they had spent living in the deep south. And people that had lived a certain amount of time there, yeah. I think it was like a, a seven years or more. When they uh, got, uh, well, let's say I'll start with the other group, people who had not lived in the deep south. They, when they got shoulder bumped and they they were asked, how do you feel about this? They were like, I thought this guy was ridiculous. What a, what a, what a weirdo, who cares? <laughs> and they looked at their blood from before and after. And before they had a certain level of cortisol and a certain level of testosterone. And after they had pretty much the same. Hmm. But men who had spent a lot of time in the deep South, they asked them, how did you feel about it? And they're like, I want to kill that man. Like, I want to go outside and duel him. (laughs) (laughs) Like he, I can't, I can't believe this guy. Like, like, tell me who this guy, do you know this guy? Tell me where he's at. And their blood before to after they had like a 30 to 60% rise in cortisol and testosterone. They had, been enraged to the point of physical for physical violence so biologically two different things happened even though we are fundamentally the same biologically right and in the in the psychology space they had different ideas they had different interpretations mm-hmm. of what had happened yeah. to them and they had different conclusions about what was what was going on and then uh all of those these differences came from socially they had had parts of their biology had been altered by social constraints and social expectations the culture and where does that come from it's it's insane to me where this comes from but dove cohen's work shows that this is any culture that was a herding culture ends up being this uh let's take this outside (laughs) uh kind of Mm. class of people because herding cultures are cultures where your your uh your livelihood can be stolen Mm. uh it's not like farming uh it's it's uh if you had to deal with livestock and you had to deal with rustlers you had, how do you defend against that? You defend against that with a reputation for if you cross this person, they will, they will bring back retribution times a thousand of whatever you did. That's, and mm, that, mm. that prevents people from stealing your stuff. Yeah, but it's funny because so you're not a hurting cult. I'm sorry. I'll, I'll finish. Oh, yeah, you're, not, please, yeah. you're not hurting stuff. Your family is not hurting stuff. Somebody, when was the last, how far back does that go inside your culture? It goes back a pretty good ways, but the, the lag, the cultural lag is what they call it to, to mm-hmm. you is so strong that you still will react in these yeah. situations to the point that your biology will be changed by what you interpret as happening around you because of some problem that your culture faced a long time ago. God. And that's, that's true across the board for a lot of things we experience, including shame. <laughs> I, I I'll, sh- I'll give you a perfect example of what he just described. Uh, and I said this to you the other day, when my father passed away, I inherited 30 firearms, right? And, and he's from West Texas. It was just part of our culture. There's a, I think I even have like one of the firearms, little collector's item, little pistol back there on the bookshelf. (laughs) And, and, and so part of my culture was like, a man keeps a gun in the house, protect the family. And, and this was about 11 years ago when I first moved to downtown Portland and I had a, I had a firearm kind of on the ready. That was my, in my mind, my like insurance. And I remember hearing a sound. This is, you know, going back to something you referenced earlier. Mm-hmm. And my brain is 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 putting together the monster. Kill it. Yeah, it's time to it's go time. And I get up. I don't I don't find my firearm, but I get up to go investigate, and it's my child, right? Who was at the time three years old. And I thought, fuck this. Like mm-hmm. I like when the, the phrase that came to my mind was when when you have a hammer, everything's a nail. Mm-hmm. And I and I 
put my gun away. I, I moved it from where it was easily accessible to locked in a, in a safe. But that's yeah. kind of almost a little bit of a different thing, right? Because it's almost proof. Well, I think, I don't know, but it sounds like there's some interesting things going on there. Like, yeah. for example, your dad, there seems to be a reduction in from one generation to the next in that res- blood response, or at least a conscious choice that you're making not to act on the blood response that you've had from generations. Do you know what and I mean? And the fact that you're the fact that you have any the metacognition really re- shows that, right? You're thinking about your thinking, whereas yeah. I would assume you go a few generations back, and this is just the way things are. There's no thinking as to why we would be this way. It's just yeah. the way we are, which is a good thing to know because I bet there's about a billion things happening in your conscious experience right now that you still feel that's just the way things are and you haven't engaged in any kind of metacognition about um like the 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 gun culture thing is a is a a good example of that uh you know if you've ever seen people with their like christmas cards and the whole family's got a gun and like certain portions of the country are like what the fuck is wrong with these people and other portions of the country are like yeah that's cool right but and but the source of that like the original like inception incepting like problem that that culture faced that it was trying to solve by creating norms and those norms are leveraging certain primate aspects of ourselves this gets lost to the point that it just becomes normal to us and unquestionable like the all primates experience shame when they feel like they're doing something that is causing them to look like they're not a good member of the group Mm. but what is classified as being a good member of the group is different from culture culture. and we get confused as hell because like we'll just be wrong like my shame response is just wrong oh to dancing getting caught dancing to to the things that i'm shameful about it's fucking wrong like it's actually it is wrong when you dance sometimes (laughs) shut up man (laughs) that was not cool he's actually a really good dancer (laughs) no i it's like if 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 that shame response is to keep us connected somehow it's doing the opposite for me it's keeping me from connection it's keeping me from um from uh from creating new relationships, from having new experiences that are really positive, you know? Yeah. And I, and I know, I think we're doing a pretty good job of like, we've got some conversations going. I, I'm really curious to your own, your own, as I, I was asking before, uh, your own experience around maybe deconstructing and having some conscious agency over not feeling these strong emotional uh, uh, responses, uh, shameful responses, but um potentially i'd like to share something around around my experience because i've experienced a success recently okay i'm wondering if you could you 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 might see like oh yeah this is what's going on where i'm just kind of like hacking away blindly and and going by intuition um intuition alone and that's the i realized recently that i'll get uh, ashamed getting caught doing things um but that i value when i'm around kids supporting their ability to make mistakes, to do so while being watched, to not feel criticized, judged, anything. I think it's important to be able to do those things, not only by yourself, but also be observed. So that's always a nice little moment for me to discover how to support someone else, whether it's a kid or not, being in that experimental place where they're just playing. Mm. And so but what I noticed for me, I tried to do that and I tried to do it in front of me and I get the strong emotional response every time. And it's just like, this isn't decreasing. Like maybe it will over decades and maybe I just need to be more patient. Fair enough. But what I've noticed, and I don't know, I can't remember exactly why I made this decision, but 
I realized, oh, if I just get good at the thing, then I don't mind getting caught. And also, I don't mind making mistakes. And at first I was like, well, you shouldn't have to be good at something to be playful with it, you know, but I just, I, that's just something I need to do. And I don't know why that is David, but it has helped me with this experience around shame and to be more myself in front of people and yeah. spontaneously and more playful is I just need, I have needed to commit to these few things that I care about in life around music and around dance and, you know, around uh, a couple other things that don't really matter, but yeah. And I'm, I'm just curious, it's working for me. But it also feels like I'm cheating a little bit. <laughs> like you shouldn't have to do that, but I just do. I don't think there's any different than uh, lifting weights or, or, or paying attention to what you eat. Like you're hacking your biology. Mm. At, at the end of the day, that's what you're doing. You're hacking these 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 uh, these emotions and um, motivations and uh, predilections that, at some level, are coming from neurons, and then that have been shaped over time by cultural influences. Mm. So to uh, to purposely, mindfully, uh, and with both responsibility and ownership of what you are doing, uh, alter these things through practice and alter these things through conversations and through testing the waters and, yeah. play, and yeah. playing. Yeah. It's no different than than picking up something heavy over and over again until your body changes in response to it. You are hacking yourself on purpose using your volition. Mm. What a that, tricky thing cool. to not that's realize that though, yeah. and to have it takes decades to. It's just so simple, you know. Like put mm. that way, and, and when I arrive to it, I'm like, oh yeah, you just need to give these things quality attention and get stronger. Like absolutely, oh, I've been going yeah. into the weight room and being like, God, I fucking suck at lifting weights. It's like, dude, pull some plates off, man. Like you can't do it. You know, yeah, why yeah. am I embarrassed? Because I'm sitting over here hurting myself. Like, but it's a, that's a great question. But that is a great question to ask yourself. Like, why am I embarrassed? Because what, who, what is the audience to whom I feel this is going to possibly cost me something if they don't like it? Like, and and they get as deep into that as you can get. Like, who is who are the people that I feel beholden to, and how would they react to it? And then test the waters of um, doing something that you're scared of doing because of these feelings. Yeah. Uh, and with and, if, and test test who who judges you harshly, who doesn't judge you harshly, and start to recalibrate who you feel beholden to and whose trust matters to you. Is that part of the recipe of those rare circumstances that help people change? Is that what you've experienced around? Some oh of man, it's humongous. Like the people who left, um, like the people who left Westboro Baptist Church, for example. Um, most of the time, they left the church not because they disagreed with their. Um, sort of their core values toward LGBT people, right? They, they usually left the church for something petty or something seemingly petty to us. Uh, it was, sometimes it was dress codes. Uh, one person I know that left, uh, he had hurt his back and they didn't uh, allow him to go to the doctor. And, but these were cracks that led in the light. Like these were things that they were like, like he had been going to school to be a nurse and he knew a better way of taking care of his back than praying it away. Um, this uh, for for Megan, uh, who famously left the church, she had been exposed to kind people who were willing to talk to her without shaming her about what she believed, and had found a few things within the scripture that she questioned. She had questioned on her own, and they validated her for questioning it. And this was the crack that led in the light to questioning more and more things. Same thing with uh, Zach, who hurt his back. He was like, "If I don't agree with this, this means it's possible that they're wrong about other stuff." And it yeah. starts to to yeah. 
to this starts to erode because you're like hmm. you know, it's not completely unquestionable and then uh this usually is what happens this that's the incremental uh there's yeah. a there's sort of a tipping point to it but it starts small like that and what will happen is for everyone i've seen leave a um a conspiratorial community or a religious community or something like that they usually get to a point where they feel like their values are uh, are not aligned with the value of the group, and they attempt yeah. to change the group. It's, it's similar to assimilation accommodation, but they're doing it at the group level. They're like, can I get the group to change so that yeah. they share my values and I don't have to leave them? And they'll present their case often. And if the group is amenable to it, that's usually what leads to a schism. That's how you get denominations. Yeah. But if the group's not amenable to it, they look... if they will oftentimes stay in if there's no uh, social safety net for them to fall into. But what happens is they will, even with other knowledge, start looking for other groups of people who are more amenable to their value sets. And if they can get enough of them, there will be a moment where they are like, I can't change this group, but I can go to these people who accept me for who I am. I'll go there. And this will happen over and over again throughout your life because that group yeah. over time, you might start changing and feeling like they don't match your values. And eventually yeah. you'll find your comfort spot, right? But that's usually what happens is that uh, people attempt to change the group they're in. And if it doesn't work out for them, they start looking for an escape hatch. And if they're lucky, some people never get an escape hatch, but if they're lucky, yeah. they, they, they escape to something that's, that's better for them. So it makes them in, feel more like their authentic self. Are you in the middle of... Uh of any of these schisms personally or oh man this is my whole life right like uh, <laughs> uh actually in writing this book was a big uh, writing how minds change was a big deal because like mm. i uh i didn't realize this was going to be the arc of the book until deep into it but oh, i had the 9 11 guy and then they i think i read i read this though but you you had an idea for it and then you somebody changed their mind and it kind of blew your mind if, kind of yeah, I was. I used to give lectures where I would say people would ask, like, "Hey, my my dad's thinks Barack Obama is a secret Muslim Kenyan reptile. Like, what do I do about that?" Oh, he's not. <laughs> <laughs> Hold on, I have something to go do. Uh, the, 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 he, I would say in those lectures, um, there's nothing you can do about it. You can't change his mind. I was right. I was in that camp, yeah, right? Yeah. And yeah. I um, a portion of my audience for the sort of in the big S skeptics community or the hum, rational the humanists. Uh, secular humanist groups and mm. um there's a lot of uh and I'm, I'm i know this is not an acceptable term of art anymore but there's a lot of douchebaggery in those groups that that yeah. and and I'm, we're we're into the into that phrase we are yeah, yeah, i've yeah. been using it and lately okay. been like, i don't know if it's yeah, i don't know if it's stop. okay to use it and i'm totally okay with not using it anymore yeah. but uh there's that was the two, last one one song <laughs> but there's a i was i was so uh i was so um locked into the this idea that humans are flawed and irrational yeah and and you could explain a lot of stuff because of that mm. but in, in, as i started to work on this book uh i met not only i started meeting people who had changed their minds just straight up like they had been told hey that's not true and they're like hmm, i didn't think about that way and i was like okay that goes that goes against what i've been telling people <laughs> yeah uh i saw people leaving conspiratorial communities by research doing their own research or being influenced by other people now started to see persuasion i was like persuasion totally works i had i i went out with uh the uh leadership lab in california they go door to door and just knock on doors and and change people's minds in 20 minutes about uh, wedge issues like uh transgender bathroom laws and abortion and stuff like that and then um 
I met the people in street epistemology who uh, approach people on the street and challenge their deeply held beliefs about just about anything. And they can in roughly 20 minutes cause people to flip their certainty on all sorts of things. And most of all, I met Hugo Mercier and Dan Sperber who showed me that humans are not flawed and irrational. They're biased and lazy, which is different. And it's very rational to commit confirmation bias. It's very rational to commit all the biases I've ever written about. Um, but there's nothing irrational about uh, if you go to look for your keys, go look for them in your kitchen before you get in the car and drive to some other town like that. But you should try to confirm your hypothesis first instead of disconfirm it. And there's a reason that doesn't work very well for for scientific principles, but it works well for the kind of day to day stuff we do. Right. But the the biggest thing was um, seeing that um, we're lazy and biased instead of flawed and rational because reasoning I had sort of been um, enchanted by the concept of human reason, you know, the, the philosophical idea of logic and rationality and propositions, and this is the way towards truth and the eternal. Um, but human reasoning is not that. Reasoning is just coming up with reasons. It's just coming up with reasons for what right. you think, feel, and believe yeah. that are justifiable and plausible for other people to around you. And they would be like, oh, that seems like a reasonable thing to think and feel and do. Once I got into that space, I had to accept that I'm going to have to say in this book, hey, I'm sorry about all the stuff that I've been telling you, but I think I was wrong about a wow. pretty good bit of it. And here's the story of how. Wow. And, awesome. and and I think the biggest moment came at the, I learned a bunch of, um, I learned a bunch of persuasion techniques in doing this. And um, I went to this retreat, this uh, in uh, Northern, in uh, North of Montreal, uh, there were 40 of us were invited to give lectures at this uh, sort of like a, a camp in the woods that they had like this lodge and they had a, 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 a big telescope there and a planetarium. And um, it was great. Like we had a campfires and then we gave lectures. It was a cool experience. And I had just come back from Sweden and I had just given a lecture. I just um, uh, used one of these persuasion techniques with a, uh, Mark Sargent, who's sort of a, the most famous flat earther. And I had talked about this a lot when we were all hanging out, but it wasn't in my lecture that I gave. I gave a lecture about um, this card study that demonstrates sort of the assimilation of accommodation. And um, everyone just kept asking about, let me see the technique, let me see the technique. And I was like, well, you know, how about maybe, I don't know, it's weird to go through it. I, uh, you know, you're all cool people and we're all getting to know each other. It feels, feels weird to question your core beliefs. Yeah. Uh, with, a, with a persuasion technique. But we had uh, one night, we we're all having dinner in the, and they had like, it was like a cafeteria kind of thing. And uh, one of the people that I had uh, spent a lot of time talking to about all this, he said, I would like to see the technique. And so I had my notebooks and I was like, okay, we'll do it. And um, as we were talking, people started gathering around us and eventually it was the entire, the whole place was there, all 40 people. But so when I started up, I was like, okay, what is a core belief, something that you have, it could be a belief or an attitude, but it'd be easier if we use a belief or, or a value, but beliefs are much easier. Um, something that sort of guides your thinking every day and something you're willing to question here with me right now. And uh, he said, well, I believe in God. I was like, oh, man, <laughs> that's, that's, the, that's the one I didn't, that's the one you just, just the, oh, don't do that one. Yeah. Um, He's like, sure. why not? Because you think it'll work and it'll be intense. I that also I just feel like you know, there's nothing more core 
you know, those was one of the most core things yeah. you believe. And plus, we were all being very friendly, and this introduces something yeah. that could be like, I don't oh, know where yeah. it's going to go. Said, yeah. yeah. So he, um, I said sure. And so the way it went, and here's the short version of the story. I said, um, okay, um, on a scale from zero to one hundred, how certain are you that God exists right now? And he said, I'm uh, probably a uh, 80, but sometimes higher, sometimes lower. I said, was there a, a period of time in your life when you weren't an 80, some other number? He goes, yeah, it used to be zero. And I was like, oh, okay, well, how did you go from zero to 80? And these are all elements of this persuasive technique, by the way, these are this sort of line of question. Yeah. And um, he said, well, I'll tell you a story, but I only, I usually only tell a story once a year, but I'll tell it to you here today. Uh, and so I, he told me the story where he oh. had went to the Holy Land, uh, to destroy his faith. He was really wanted to become an atheist. And he, uh, he had, he had worked in a, uh, a record store. He had met someone who kept coming in. He used to be uh, in the military and would, was now a mercenary and went back and forth to the Holy Land doing odd jobs. And he was thinking he would like to be a photographer. The, this person I was talking to wanted to be a photographer. And he said, this would be a chance to take some really cool photographs. So he, but also where I'm really going to go is to use this as a way to get to the Holy Land and talk to some um, spiritual leaders. So he goes there and uh, he kind of gets what he wants out of it. He goes from um, uh, temple to temple, talking to people who have, some of them even have like original documents and stuff. And everywhere he went, he felt like, you know, the like, they he felt like they were um they felt very televangelist e to him uh and he was like getting confirmation confirmation of what he wants there to confirmation of especially when they started telling him like for a thousand bucks american i'll show you like a book the, the the finger bones of jesus writing twenty like, thousand bucks <laughs> yeah and he's just like you know um yeah. Uh, he was like, "Fuck these people!" And he was like, "For free, this is great." Yeah, <laughs> but he's at the Church of the Holy Sepulcher, and he was uh, he was having this experience of like, "Yeah, I got what I wanted," and he walked out, and he heard someone moaning and crying, and this was at a period of time when the sun is just setting, and a lot of these um, these like priest types are going out to do their thing, and uh, he walks into the, around the side of this giant cathedral like building and he in one of the alcoves he finds there's a young woman uh in a pool of blood and vomit and she's dying and he goes and asks her what, what if she can if he can help her she has a suicide note uh he actually showed me the note it's still covered in blood wow. um and he doesn't understand the language very well he doesn't know what really was going on but he picks her up cradles her in his arms uh, and starts running through these cobblestone streets of this ancient city with the sun setting and just begging for help from anyone. And he uh, gets a taxi, takes her to a hospital and they pump her stomach and he stays by her side this whole time. Uh, eventually the family arrives. Eventually there are people who can translate. Uh, he, she had a book, a little notebook with her that had numbers. He just called them one at a time until he found their family. And uh, she had just recently been she recently just broken up with a boyfriend uh they were in, from slightly different schisms of the faith and they didn't like it and she tried to kill herself mm -hmm. and he through what he did he saved her life and she went she went on to become a nurse and has a family and they stay in touch and he's had he's gone to have uh 
to to have these great big meals with uh, both her and her family and the bigger family. So and he, he told tells me, that story. And that's the that's that's the and that's the story, right? And he's he said that whatever uh, you think of when you use the word God, whatever you use, whatever that word is a definition for in your mind. For him, it was for that moment. And if there is something holy, he experienced it. And because of that, he went to the Holy Land to destroy his faith. But what he did is he ended up gaining a faith that was all his own. Mm-hmm. And um, so he's telling the story. And I mean, we are, well, we have tears. It is powerful. Like the way I'm telling the story, it doesn't even come close to the magnitude of what it felt like to be in that space. Plus there are people all around us and they're very leaned in. And there's a, there's a real heaviness in the air. It's a very pregnant moment with this, 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 we're very, the emotions are very high. And I, I knew what came next in the, um, this technique. And, and I had a real confidence that if I went through the rest of it, I could probably take some of this away from them. Um, but I felt, what's the good of it? And what is the good of that in this moment? Because I feel like I've gained more from this conversation than I could ever uh, steal from him. And I said, um, look, if I took out a little glass, if I took had a little box with a button in it with glass over it, and I put it in front of you, and when you open the glass and press the button, you go from an 80 back down to zero, would you press the button? And he paused for what felt like 45 minutes. I'm sure it was just like 15 seconds, but it was, it was the longest pause I've ever experienced in my life. And um, he said, no. And I said, then I think we're done here. I, don't, I, can't, I can't imagine why we would continue this conversation. And, and thank you for telling me your story. And, we, and I closed up my notebook. And I remember uh, one of the people there, he just went, and then And then we all hugged. Everyone, that, a 40-person hug. And I feel like given my you know, reputation as what I do and what, I, and what I've told people as an, uh, things that I've put out there in podcasts and books and stuff like that, um, I had changed so much through my experience of exploring these spaces that I felt like that was the right move there. And um, I was deeply changed by that experience and by the experiences leading up to it, but I didn't know it until I was tested. And I was given this ability to use persuasion, I think, through writing this book. And I had never really asked myself, when when, and where should this be used? And I think there was a previous version of me that would have just bulldozed right through that. I'd be like, ha what do you think you are? You think that was God? Yeah. But that's not the point, right? Yeah. What he did was, what he did was something that is of the highest caliber of what a human being can do. And it really demonstrates the awe and the, um, the yearning we have for transcending our primate selves to something bigger than that was fulfilled by his experience and i don't care what he labels it and i don't care if that uh if what he labels it is not what i would label it what's the point of that conversation so yeah that changed me a lot (laughs) dude that's a that's an amazing story it seems to me that we are and i don't know this um but it's just a feeling that i've had that we all play more of a creative role in our lives than than maybe at least the society I grew up in and and the sort of zeitgeist of of the world now that we know like 
we have more of a say in what happens. And as some of your work seems to point to that, but also we were speaking before you came on about paradox and holding opposites. And I think that there's that scientific phrase you've probably heard, the universe is not only stranger than we think, it's stranger than we can think. Mm-hmm. That'd probably be a good one to put in on, on the, your little process that you did, the process that you developed. But let's say that's true. <clears throat> then I, I don't know what's going on, you know? And I suspect that, that Ron and your and me and everyone else's reality is, is both a center in itself of, of a potentially a universe or whatever. And a role in mind i'm a center too like how can you have one more than one center of the side like ancient native americans saying that the the place where center is everywhere and circumference nowhere it's kind of campbell talked about that in in one of no that's good i like that a lot well if that's true to me that story you just told is like this mysterious powerful respect of someone else's even though they are a player in your life, potentially, this is my way I see things. It's not to say this is how you feel about it. Even though that they are a player in your life, uh, someone as around your center, they're also a center in the creator in and of themselves, potentially. And in the way I see life, that just was a moment of true respect, you know? Seeing respect, sp- spectacle, like mm-hmm. spe- you saw, you gave distance and you let it be and you said, we don't need to flip that toggle, you know? And <laughs> like that's I, which i, I gotta say like to you man like that's in a lot of ways and i don't know if i'm not trying to like stroke your ego here david I, i'm <laughs> I, I think i think that what you know you you said your comment about him is like the, in a lot of ways that's the, the pinnacle of human experience what he what he did but so is what you did which was to respect his stance and respect his experience and and not needing to prove a point you yeah. didn't need to 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 be uh, intellectually superior in fact um you you understood the gift of empathy stated or unstated and that connection that was then shared with the hug which by the way i felt right you, even as you're telling the story and like my tears are welling up in my eyes like i like i wanted to be a part of that hug and did feel a part of that hug and have you have you uh, are you familiar with any writing by c.s lewis yeah have you read the the last battle part of the it's the last book in the chronicle uh, of i i have read that but i read it when i was very young mm-hmm. and i don't oh, remember much but i do know i do remember reading it yes well there's a character like you in it and and the character says basically that there's a there's an apocalypse and aslan is like choosing who gets to make it and one of the characters um is devoted to his path but his but his heart is always in a really good position but it's an opposition culturally to what the the culture that aslan was supposed to be a part of supposedly a part of and the guy's like well i'm i I guess i'm not going to make it in because i didn't you know i wasn't a follower of you and he's like no you were actually Mm -hmm. every time you did something good essentially like you were actually in in cahoots with me i'm see, obviously paraphrasing this. See, this this is something that's very close to my heart and it's up in my in my life and i think in the world now pertains to so many of the discussions and divisiveness that's going on and that's the the word there's a lot of words flying around mm. 
And when someone uses some words that are counter to the, what I believe or my meanings of those words, there's a conflict. It would be really nice if people just saw, you know what, I know you're using words that I don't agree with, I find offensive, blah, 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 but I see your, I see your inner world is aligned. I see your heart. Yeah. You know, I, these are weak words around, around it, but I see that your intention, I see who you yeah. are. Yeah. You know, you're not hurtful, you care. You know, and I, I really wish, and I don't know how to be a proponent of this other than hacking my way through some building, some articulation around it, but I really Articulating wish- Articulating the ineffable, baby. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, see, yeah. that happened the other night. I said something offensive to somebody because I'm, because, because David, I'm valuing right now. I need to be free. I need to explore. I need to make mistakes. I need to be able to be okay um, reaching out there and taking my like- you know, shitty f first flaps of flight, you know, in, in so many words and ideas and conversations. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to be able to, to be, have someone hawking, you know, over me, like they're ready to dive on me. It's just like, fuck off. You know, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm doing, I'm doing something good. And, and we, we were in an experience that doesn't, the actual story doesn't matter, but someone was like, they attached to a word I said, and I was like, Whoa, look at, look at, behind the word i got your back i'm here mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. and there was like no hell no you know and it just breaks my heart and i don't yeah. know if you uh, i feel you very strongly on this uh yeah, that, that led to me having a different i'm still disassembling this experience right i'm still disassembling the experience of putting all this together uh um because i went into trying to write I, I wanted to write a book that was on the ground i wanted to have it i wanted to have first person experiences and I did not expect to change my own mind. I didn't expect to change through that experience. I thought I would go in and say, like, here's how the world works, and here's another book about things. That you, like, here's, here's another. Here's another yeah. book that's basically Wikipedia with jokes. Nice. Uh, <laughs> and I didn't expect this sort of thing. And then when you have an experience like that, you know, you go on a walkabout to try to understand it, and you start awesome. being very open to other voices helping you understand it. Like just listening to you talk about it with me now. Like, like I feel how. Uh, the your uh, take on everything and what you're saying about my place in it, like I can feel being deeply affected by just this conversation in a way that the previous version of me was so uh, cut off from that sort of experience. And um, I, I had I brought some of this to like a negotiation expert who told me, um, you know, debates have winners and losers, and nobody wants to be a loser. And the only person who gains anything from winning a debate is the person who learns nothing. And the better framing for every for something like this is let's have a conversation and let's treat this like a mystery we're trying to solve. And you, we'll work, we'll collaborate on trying to understand it. So all of a sudden, the argumentative framework takes on a completely different patina. I'm uh, if we are if we're discussing an issue that we have different perspectives on. I can treat it as if we have different perspectives and neither one of us has the total perspective, which is a different way of, it's not like debating where I need to show that I'm right and you're wrong and you need to show that you're right and, and, and that I'm wrong. That's a different construction. So if instead I'm thinking like, you know, we have, we're back to back and you're looking this way and I'm looking this way. And the only way that we can understand what's actually happening to have a real perspective on the world around us is if I we enter a state of trust where we share what we're each seeing and we yeah. take from each person's perspective and add to this bigger worldview. That is the gift of this ability to communicate with one another. This is why we have all of this. 
And it just so happens we're in a state where the ways we're communicating with one another, like over this kind of medium, it's much easier. But if you get on something like, say, uh, Facebook or Twitter, it's very difficult to have that kind of conversation with someone. It's just it's just the way that that platform was constructed that yeah. limits your ability to have that kind of interaction. And but we have the ability to do this like it is available to us and you can feel yourself snap into it when it's working correctly. Yeah. And I feel, I feel like we're going to be OK if we can like model our virtual environments and our strange media to match more closely to the humanity that's waiting to embrace it. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just that we are making kind of crappy versions of it right now. We have to keep working on that. And that's, that's, and it's the same is true for pop for all these other old institutions that we're watching crumble around us. Workplaces don't seem to work. Like after COVID, we're all looking at workplaces and going, did we really have to do it that way? Uh, politics uh, in, a, in a, this kind of information ecosystem is, feels like, do we really have to do it that way? There's a lot of that happening. And I feel like interpersonal communication can, can gain from it. And men, especially with all the baggage that we carry with us from cultural uh, expectations, have been, have been the ability to, to collaborate and work together and be open and introspective and have actual emotions and not feel that threat of being shamed for just feeling things is so new. This is something that is really just, we're like our, the three generation spread of Zoomers uh, well, millennial Zoomers, Generation X, like we're the first dudes in a long time that have the opportunity to to support one another, um, pick and choose from the buffet of masculinity what what works for us, mm -hmm. um, to have fulfilling real relationships with with with, uh, with uh, romantic partners, and to um, the I think in. And to, to even like, like I come from a culture, like in the deep South, like nobody goes to therapy. Um, in the United States, therapy is, is men are, have, were looked down upon for therapy in a lot of, for in a lot of ways. And just the access to be mindful of your own self in that way. These were new things that require this mix of assimilation and accommodation. And I can feel the newness of our own humanity in a way that I'd never noticed before. And a lot of that came out of um, really, really saying like, you know, maybe uh, I was wrong about a lot of stuff. And once you once you know you're wrong about anything, it opens you up to being wrong about everything, which is nice yeah. because there's something on the other side of that, right? Yeah. It's exactly what we were talking about. You got to be brave. That's great. Yeah. You, you know, because where's the solid ground? Mm. Yeah. Well, you've got to have solid. This whole yeah. we could fucking go up on that. <laughs> uh, yeah, Dave, we're we're a bit over an hour together. How you doing on time? You okay? You need to go? I'm good. Uh, I can. What do I got? I um. Uh, I think we booked. It? two one-hour sessions and we got about 10 minutes before the second one ends hey i'm with you for 10 more minutes what do you want to talk about well i not in, well should we do the should we do yeah, the technique you're talking about thinking. of oh the of, technique okay um, yeah, noticing awesome. yeah. <laughs> um well it's like i need i need this change. right now like, come on man <laughs> sure, sure, sure. <laughs> don't leave me hanging <laughs> Let me, uh, i'll start i'll start by telling you this term of art called surf pad and then uh, i'll get into the make the other thing make more sense um, surf pad is something that came out of, uh, you remember the dress that was all over the internet in 2015. Some people saw it as black and blue and other people saw it as yellow and, and yeah. um, or white and gold. Yeah. Um, I bet the researchers who like studied that, uh, to try to get an idea of what was going on there. Um, and the, if you see the dress, you'll see it as one thing or the other. And you have no choice in the matter is how you'll see it. Hmm. And, but some people do see it differently than you. And that's kind of weird. Right. But they also have no choice, but to see it that way. Turns out the reason people see it that way is uh, they uh, 
the more time you've spent in bright light, uh, in sunlight, the more time you've spent in sunlight, or the more you, you work around windows or something, uh, you'll see it one way. And if you uh, spend more time in artificial light, you'll see it the other way. Um, the reason for that is unbeknownst to you and without your knowledge or consent, uh, when something is overexposed, the brain will subtract the luminance. That's what they call it in neuroscientists, uh, neuroscience. They, the brain will turn the brightness down on an overexposed image, whether you're seeing it through your eye, through nakedly through the eyes or, or something that's in a photograph or on a computer screen. And, um, and the, the reason for that, and there's all sorts of hypotheses for this, is it's most likely so that you, you know, I can see the benefit of it out in the natural world. Like you want to be able to see the fruit or the blood or the danger or the thing or the hole or whatever. <laughs> like you want, you want overexposed things to not be so overexposed. Yeah. So you, the brain does a little bit of photoshopping without telling you about it. And so your subjective experience is not the objective reality of the thing. It's whatever happens after, after the end of that process takes place. And you, the thing about overexposing objects, uh, when something is overexposed, how you subtract the illuminate depends on how much experience you've had with that particular kind of overexposure. So people who spend more time around sunlight, they've seen more things be exposed in blue light because there's more blue wavelengths in, um, in the sky. And um, people have been around a lot of uh, artificial light. Uh, things are mostly exposed in yellow. So, they'll, mm -hmm. so what happens is people who spend more artificial light will subtract the yellow and they get black and blue. People who spend more time in sunlight will subtract the blue and they get uh, yellow and gold. Oh, wow. And um, what you find that correlates perfectly, they had like 15,000 subjects and the more time, if they were early risers, they saw the dress one way. If they were night owls, they saw the dress the other way. Now, this is a hugely important lesson for all of us, I feel, because um, the way, you have no control over which way you see it. You just see it the way you see it, yeah. but your life experiences determine how you see it. And if you were to get into an argument with someone and say, no, it's black and blue. And the other person's like, no, it's yellow and gold. And you came to the point where like, you're like, imagine creating a culture around it. Imagine creating a religion around the way you see it. Yeah, it's unquestionable. To, I how can how can anyone possibly see this differently? That's but you're that parable of the, the God walking one way and then he turns around to the trickster, right? There, yeah, yeah. this is it maps. I love it because it's neuroscience and it maps on to so many beautiful poetic metaphors for the, mm -hmm. this this concept. And if I were to get into an argument with you as to which way it should be seen, and you were trying to, to win that argument, neither one of us would have access to the higher truth of the matter, which is we see it differently because of all this brain stuff. Like yeah. that would just be off the table if we had, if we went entered into a debate. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that being said, um, persuasion is, let me preface this by saying persuasion is not coercion. Coercion means the other person doesn't know you, what, what's going on. Uh, and you're trying to, uh, you're stealing some of their agency away. Persuasion requires that everybody's on board with what's going on. And I, I, I'm going to say out loud, like, I hope to persuade you of this. Do you, would you like to engage in, a, in an attempt for me to persuade you of something? So that's important when it comes to these techniques. You have my consent. <laughs> can, can I put a quick pause on it real quick? Yeah, yeah. I think that you were actually talking about the technique of that he uses to deconstruct sh the shame conversation, and we've got another technique that he was talking about around persuasion. Is oh that yeah, sure. Or am I on? I may, I may have. Yeah, I was talking too. about shame. That's what I was talking about. Okay, never mind. We'll talk okay. about per persuasion techniques. I'm sorry to do that. We'll have to. No, do, no, maybe, no, it's I know this is important. Part him, two, so. part two with you at some point <laughs> in the future. Yeah, get get this great book called "How Minds Change" comes out soon. Uh, <laughs> if you want persuasion techniques, um, <laughs> give us the name of the author. <laughs> I, will, I will say, uh, if you without having to go into those techniques in depth, yeah. uh, if you start any conversation from the viewpoint of 
uh, if you communicate to the other person, you should be ashamed for thinking, feeling, or doing whatever it is you're talking about. There's no way you'll ever persuade them with anything. If that is what's mm-hmm. communicated up front, the conversation's over. Related to shame, right? That's how yeah. powerful shame is. So uh, you want to talk about deconstructing shame. Um, well, I would, uh, let me switch gears into something. Yeah, I'm sorry for doing that. I just no, it's, totally it's cool. important to him. Let's see, uh, something more like in the, in the vein of motivational interviewing. Um, okay. Uh, if I were to put on my psychologist hat, which I'm not, a, I am not a psychologist. I went to school for that and abandoned it for journalism. So uh, I, all I have is a bunch of podcast experience. Um, but I do spend time with these people all, uh, a lot. And I know that like, you know, if we we're going to explore it, uh, if we we're going to deconstruct it, um, I think the thing that the most important thing is to say uh, in when, when in recent memory and like the last six weeks, can you remember a time that you felt sort of a visceral response to, to shame slash guilt? Do you want me to answer that? Yeah. Last night when I smoked too much weed and, and went on a werewolf food bender afterwards. Okay. Yeah. Um, what, at what point did you notice the, did you notice that shame was taking place? Did you notice that it was part of your subjective experience? Probably when I had eaten my first snack and then was full and was in pain, but decided to make another snack. Okay. And that was the moment I was like, this is, this is not good. Before that, did you have any, did you have any of these feelings at all? Yeah, if if we could use the scale, you know, like the one to a hundred, um, there was uh, the shame was like ten or, or fifteen, like anticipatory shame <laughs> of like I know what I'm about to do, and uh, like maybe I can talk myself out of it. Yeah, yeah, but uh, but I couldn't. And the funny thing is, I, I actually have to recant saying too high. It wasn't it wasn't like stoned out of my mind. It was just like I had the munchies, yeah. and and. You know the munchies. My my, I know that cannabis turns off the the switch in the brain that tells you you're full. So that's what that's when I, the shame was started to kick in. It does, cannabis does not turn off the shame switch, unfortunately. Me, right? It can, it can make it worse. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then after, when you when you this when you had the second snack uh, on a scale of one to ten, how high would you say you were on the shame? Pretty high. Yeah, yeah, like <laughs> 70 or 80, because it was accompanied by like actual pain, you know, the Got pain it, yeah. of being too full. Okay, the, the, here's, the a nice, here's a nice, here's a nice, yeah. here's a nice tricky psychology question. Okay. Uh, if it was, let's say it was 70, uh, why wasn't it higher? Um, because I've probably numbed myself to the routine of munchies and eating, you know, pretty frequently and also because i'm not obese like i've actually lost a lot of weight in my life mm-hmm. and and i'm in kind of in, sh- in fighting not fighting weight right now you know like i i yeah. don't i don't it's it yeah like a, like that i i know it could be way worse and i yeah. and i create a rationalism a rational the reasons yeah. You know, well, I don't Just, feel so bad. Yeah, justifications because I'm not. Well, let's take, let's look at those justifications. Yeah. Like in this company, myself and, and you and you yeah. included, like in this room, I don't feel like you should be ashamed for that. Do you feel like you should be ashamed for that? Me? Yeah. Not we talked about it. hell no. Yeah. <laughs> so okay. Yeah. Well, no one here thinks you should be ashamed. Yeah. Um, 
I'm also thinking like it could have been higher. You could have been up into 90, you could have been 100, but you weren't there because you could, in your self-talk, you're saying, I do take care of myself. I'm aware of what this is doing. Uh, I don't eat like this all the time. If I'm hearing you correctly, these are yeah. things you're saying. Uh, I've also demonstrated that I can lose weight. I can take care of myself. And I'm aware of that as well. I should be proud of myself for that. I also know why I'm doing this. It's not because I'm some sort of <laughs> glutton. It's not because I'm a, um, I'm a bad yeah. person. It's because I'm under the influence of a drug. And I also know that I took the drug and that it's okay. I've done this in the past. These all, all this self-talk seems yeah. to, to indicate to me that um, this self-talk is not just keeping you up from being higher than 70. It feels like it, 70 is not exactly the number you should be at. If, yeah. this, if this self-talk is true, do you mm. trust the self-talk? Do you think that what you said, these things are true? You know, it's funny. That's a great question. I trust the self-talk in practice, right? As a principle, like I would say that, like you shouldn't feel bad for yourself. And I would feel completely um, convicted of that mm -hmm. statement to Daniel. Mm -hmm. But to myself, there's still this, this like, um, you know, your conversation with the a scientist on on anxiety mm -hmm. uh, about our brain being stuck in those those same loops over and mm -hmm. over, and um, and I think my default mode is that. So my mm -hmm. brain's wanting to go back to it. And but I'm, I think he's talking about the self talk of, well, I'm not overweight. I, I you know, the, that the self talk you told him is the reasons of why it's oh. so higher. Do you trust uh, that? that? Is that, that right? Well, that's, yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, I, I so kind I like, that's the part I don't entirely trust is, mm. is I know that there's still some part of this, this like a broken foundational messaging in my brain mm -hmm. that is trying to elevate the shame, despite the good, right reasons to not feel it. Mm -hmm. is the is the tension between the two and i mm -hmm. and i started getting really curious about you know what that curious thing that your um, guest had talked about with anxiety like getting curious about the sensation of it i started doing that with this a long time ago and, it, and that's what finally um like made me realize what was going on i was like oh that's my little brain my little monkey brain trying to go back to what it knows that's right yeah. And, uh, and for anyone listening, that's Judd Brewer and his book is Unwinding Anxiety. And this yeah. is, these are incredible lessons to, uh, for any, I, I, I lost hundred pounds too. Uh, oh, uh, that's uh, amazing. Uh, well done, man. Right, right. Half of it before COVID half after. Uh, so I understand those feelings you're talking about. Uh, I, I get those same feelings eating anything. Mm. And Judd, Judd Brewer was very helpful in all of this. Mm. Um, Cause if you had a diet book, all diet books can just be one page and they can just be like, yes, yeah, that's right. Exercise more. <laughs> like, that's it. Right? That's it. Yeah. <laughs> but that's not it. Right. Yeah. Like how do you eat less and exercise more? How do you do these things? You need that psychology and mm -hmm. psychology is behavior. Psychology is social influences. Psychology is all sorts of things. Mm -hmm. I, I would urge you and, and challenge you to investigate. You have some self-talk, that is in conflict with some other self-talk mm -hmm. and there's some self-talk is keeping you from being above 70 um and some other self-talk is pushing it up to 70 but when you think about it when you metacognate about it i what i'm noticing from what you're telling me is that you're aware that the shame feelings are coming from an audience member that seems to be uh that you didn't invite to the party um so who is this audience? Mm. Who is this? Who is the audience to whom you feel the shame? Like it's not us. 
Same so it's got to be some other party. Yeah, yeah. And I'm imagining you could probably investigate, like, imagine yourself in different company. And who is the company that you could imagine who would be like, yeah, you should be ashamed of yourself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So this is the influence that you're going to, that you will need to focus on to like deconstruct where the shame comes from and how to like get that number down from 70. Uh, Cause I would ask you what other opinions might they have about you that you would disagree with? There's a psychologist named Robert A. Jordan who wrote a book called inner work. And he talks about active imagination where you would take not as art, not as your writing, yeah. but you would take, you would ask the question. He just said, make character out of it. Mm-hmm. Out of both of those people, maybe there's more than one version of each one. And then you have a conversation where you put them in an environment. Have you heard of this this guy in this work? I haven't heard of him, but I've heard of this technique, yes. There's a, is, there's that, a is that something that you, that you... Yeah, because you're being... Um, I, mean, I, I, I know better than to put words in, to, to put thoughts in your head. I, I, would, I would task you to, to imagine um, the, the people to whom you feel are to the ideas to whom you feel beholden here what are some other aspects of your life that they would be, they would disapprove of? And did you, would you change those aspects of your life to, to seek their approval? Mm-hmm. I would think probably no. Mm-hmm. And if that's true, it will affect this feeling of shame in other places too. And you'll, cause you're really starting to, to self author, as they say, you're starting to say, well, this is um, the, my, my friend, Will Storr, who wrote a great book called um, uh, the, he wrote a great, a lot of great books. Uh, uh, he's one of my, he's, we have a nice gentleman rival rivalry. And, um, he said, uh, he did a lot of work in the personality research, you know, personality, certain aspects of personality are pretty unchangeable. Yeah. Uh, they're like, um, uh, openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, mm. um, agreeableness, neuroticism. Uh, you know, we have a certain sliders, we have a certain knob setting and all of those, um, but aware of all of that, he talked about the, you know, a lizard that uh, on an iceberg is very uncomfortable and may think that that's because there's something wrong with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that lizard in the desert feels nice and comfy and realizes that it's fine. And it's because it didn't change itself. It changed its environment. Mm-hmm. Um, and in changing its environment, it did change portions of its inner self. So oftentimes moving into a different environment of people who share your values and, and people who share your, your, the, the things you feel are important goals to reach for yeah. and react to the world at a, with a certain emotional quality that you find is amenable to how you would like to react to the world and grow into. Um, when you surround yourself by that, whether physically or just in the imagination of being surrounded by an audience of those sorts of mm-hmm. people, uh, you will find that things that used to feel shameful will feel less so, and things that used to feel unshameful will feel more so. Wow. And and you will find yourself growing into the true value system that will bring to you what you're looking for, what it is that you want to be, what you want to become, yeah. the yeah. path that you want to be on. And I think yeah. that even eating that little bit of extra food after after um, taking a sick bong rip is a is a uh, it's a portal to that, right? Nothing is nothing is is uh absent this uh there's nothing that is uh outside of the space of opportunities to discover yourself and i think this is just one more way of doing so man um (laughs) 
Yeah, man, that's this is a really fun conversation. This for sure. Good. I loved every every aspect of this. I, I took I we, took a lot of notes today. The only thing we didn't talk about was the only thing we thought we would, which is meaning. And it sounds like it was a meaningful conversation. Yeah, so we had a very meaningful. Without talking about the meaning. <laughs> um, when did your book come out? June or July of next year. June, July. Awesome. Okay, man. Hey, Dave, what a, I hope that it sounds like it worked all right for you. Thank you. I love it. I love having an opportunity to talk. It's <laughs> huge, man. This it, was every conversation that you leave feeling like you gained something like yeah. we all leveled up yeah. a little bit like yeah. i heard the final fantasy music at some point <laughs> <laughs> it was I a good conversation yeah. um i would love to speak to you someday more i hope that happens if not just thank you for being a part of our our, our path you know I, I hey thank you and uh sure. reach out to me anytime and uh right. you know you got all of my uh stuff to reach out to me and uh same to the audience uh i'm yeah. very easily accessible davidmccrane.com and uh you are not so smart.com you can find all my stuff there i really appreciate it david thank you man thanks all so right. much Take care, all right man see you later um, field dressing thank you so much the end of the portion of a recorded episode of Cutting for Sign, we had David McRaney McRaney on today. And uh, your mind was so spun out, you can't remember his name. Gosh, I that was you, powerful. That, that was, was a really, really powerful. Um, that was a very powerful talk. I'm really glad we had that. I mean, David's background is he's a journalist and and a um, um, writer author who's written a couple titles on can't um, see you oh here we go how we how about that yeah david let me make sure that this is okay he is a big mind he's a big mind and he's he's a big heart yeah you know know, the, the the introduction that you read about him that said he had in fact i'm going to reread it really quickly because cool. it was so good and i don't know who found this out about him or what it was but it was um he is known for his quick sense of humor compassion heart keen curiosity has been described as a self-delusion expert in psychology nerd whose mind is expansive surprising and big-hearted and all of those things came out in spades in spades man like it, his his it's so easy to be an intellectual and to and to kind of shit on everyone's ideas and actually be pretty good at it and i yeah. think right now yeah um i think right now in this point in history like we love that shit we love it when someone can come in with good rational thought and just sniper someone's arguments or or um their vision or view of what reality is and just cut it to shreds yeah and and he has that capacity he's you know in in an intellectual sense he had like his hands or his brain should be labeled as a lethal weapon right but his he's he is compassionate he's really compassionate and that is and i i think that is actually the thing that like is the most human part of us when we're the best part of humanity you know when we can see each other for the for what we despite ourselves that those two things and it's more nuanced than that yeah. right but those two things coming together i would say is, is we're getting closer to like yeah spot, right? yeah well said, compassion well said. is great that's yeah. awesome intellects is great you know but those two things coming together and bringing the other little the things that aspects of humanity uh intuition yeah. um 
uh, I don't want to go into like, like the other little things that might make that up because the point is just that it's the coming together of several aspects of being human and yeah. that, that dude does that and you can see in his body language you can hear it in his word he has the word he doesn't just feel it he knows how to communicate it he obviously values communicating it you know that's that's an outlier you yeah know? that's a lot of different things that come together any one of which would have been would be valued uh and pretty cool to see in someone you see someone really smart you see someone who's yeah. really articulate you see yeah. another person who's got a good heart you see another person who values people like coming together and communicating and changing yeah. but when you get all those things to wrap up in one person and then that person be doing the thing the uh, something that equals all that and you're or with that for a long time that that's when you get an international best-selling author there's a reason why people all over the world reading this stuff you know and, yeah and i, I just that that was something else to for him to come and spend time with two assholes in portland and just like you know what i mean it's yeah like, i know we're doing a good thing and, and people are getting into it but fuck man well that's i mean that's, <laughs> that's the two hours of that full time that's the know? gift there is um is is the first thing that we spoke about the very first thing that we talked on is um is his optimism about humanity right now and, yeah and that's not something you hear very often right now that. like that like that someone feels good about the way humanity is going. Well, I would challenge that. I wouldn't. I, I wouldn't say that that's not something that you hear very often. You do. Sure, sure. To it. Yeah, it's, that, it's, it's there. there. It's, it's there. What you want to tune in. But it's to. not what sells news, and it's not what sells. I don't know. Maybe it is. Mm. I mean, I hear you. I hear. Yeah. You. I mean to be like push you on that. Yeah, I get it. It's just that. It's just that. Maybe it can. It certainly can. It it definitely can, um, but uh you know the murder in downtown portland is going to get more viewers than two guys like decide to, to agree to disagree and hug it out <laughs> depends on how it's it depends on how, how yeah. it's said how it's presented and and you know what i mean like people are thirsty for that i'm, I'm thirsty I'm for told, it. Hey, yeah 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 hey, i'm a person i'm valuable i'm very thirsty I, for it i am not interested in it disproportionately in the murder yeah you know what i mean yeah that's not to say i'm not interested yeah it's just that it that has its place and it wouldn't become my whole world and murder maybe isn't even the best example because that is news and that's right. that's news that should be said it's it's like maybe when something that's a little bit more like clickbaity and and uh roping you into to totally. a story that's not really a story but it's it seems negative to get your emotions up you know yeah i'm i'm not interested and i'm really interested in some of the stories that david told us today because they brought us both to tears you know and like they brought him to tears. He was getting emotional. <laughs> I know. You know, I you know. Just, you remember you told yeah, me yeah. when we started, and I, I don't think that this would be rude, but you were like, you kind of like Spock. <laughs> you know, Spock cried on the show today. And he didn't cry. I don't think yeah, he yeah, I don't, yeah. I, don't I, I, I sensed a tear. I was like, yeah. It's like to see a heart, you know, on display. A true heart. Uh, with a brain yeah. that's sitting right by it. It's just like, I'll never be stop being fascinated by that. I agree. I completely agree. I I am inspired to to continue to have more curious conversations with as many people as I can, and and especially when those conversations feel like I've got something at stake, and bringing curiosity around why I think I have something at stake, what sacred thing I need to hold on to. Yeah. Why does that feel like life or death to me? Not trying to persuade the other person but why do i feel so strongly about that and is that something that i 
could potentially loosen my grip on a bit. And I loved his image of when he was talking about how uh, people argue, you know, and then they, they, if they're not really trying to reach a ground or willing to change and mm. be changed by the conversation, then yeah. they're not really yeah. conversing. And he, and I was, when he was saying that, I was thinking an image that came to my mind, mm-hmm. there's two people facing themselves to potentially arguing. Yeah. And then that, that body, like the body position changing to side by side looking yeah. out. And then when I was thinking about that, he goes, he used back to back. He was like, Oh, interesting. Yeah. You know, let's, it's two people who are like looking out on the world and then kind of having each other's back. And I just think changing mm. the positions that we, um, of that little metaphor, mm-hmm. it really mm-hmm. is indicative of a change of mind, uh, of uh, position, of yeah. intention, of like ability to agree, of willingness. Yeah. It's willing, it trust. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, it's huge. It's huge. It's and huge. And then to see him actually do it and be changed. And then well, say he was changed by us. I mean, you, your question to him um, about are you going through your own interpersonal change? Or was there some stance that you had and that you are now take, switching? I thought that was a genius question, number one. So well done on that one. And, and then, uh, well, he's got a whole series on genius. Yeah. I don't know if you'll fit in I'll that. I'll go find if, it's, if it was actually genius. I'll watch a six-hour. A little hyperbole, <laughs> okay? Allow me. Allow me some some Just sprinkles check in the your language. Hyperbole, okay. Man. Keep it to the insults, not to the compliments. It makes me very uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was going to insult you at the same time. Thank uh, you. Didn't think you were <laughs> making yeah. me feel much better. <laughs> um, but his his authenticity around saying, "Look, my latest book that's coming out was about." how dumb we are. I mean, I'm paraphrasing what he's saying, but it's, you know, I realized I needed to change my stance as I'm writing the book. And so that's what the book is about is, uh, is how people change their minds and why they change. Their awesome. Minds. And then he had to do that to He Isn't that, that's cutting for some oh, that's, big, that's, time. Like, big time. I'm going to, yeah. I'm going to write a, write a book on, on how people can change. And I think yeah. it's rare. I don't think it happens. And then one of the first people he interviews is someone who is, I believe they were like a 9-11 truth or whatever it is. I don't yeah, know much yeah. about that, but I know it was like a firm stance on something. Yeah. And in talking to him and in interviewing, he, this person changed their mind and he was like, I thought you couldn't do that. Yeah. And he had to like scrap his idea and go back and oh, man. write I, a different book I, and change himself. Yeah. I, that, that like, I want to figure out some way we can talk, keep having conversations with David. Cause that was, that was one of those, life-giving conversations that I came out of the other side feeling smarter, more equipped, energized, you know, proud to have had it, glad to have had it. And, and I only, now I want more. I want more. I, I'm glad that we, he ended up getting to be ashamed, the, the shame exercise. Oh yeah. And he also helped me, you know, walk out back, you know, back out of a, a shame cycle that I was stuck in around something that it's easy to say, but it is easy uh, to you, say. What work would you do around that privately? I mean, what would that look That's like? a good question. I mean, I, a couple of the things that I was writing down was was who the audience is, because that's something I've always yeah. had is, is shame around who I think is judging me. And sometimes I think that's a person that I know. Really? Yeah. And only to realize like that person's not paying attention at all. <laughs> right. And then and which was a big reason, and, and this goes back, if you listen to the episode, like if you go back and listen to my religious experience, like that was, I was afraid of the shame I'd received from the religious culture I was a part of. And now it's more like, 
you know, that instance in particular, it was about, cause I don't, I'm a non-drinker, but I do smoke weed and I do do, you know, other drugs occasionally. And so for that in particular, the audience is someone I know that is a, is both a, is a teetotaler, right? Like they're completely and hundred percent sober mm. and not even relate. I'm not, and the funny thing is, is I'm not even really friends with them anymore. Like we don't talk. Yeah. We don't share, we don't share things anymore, a character in your but they are world. a character in my brain and a part. And I think an old version of me, when I first stopped drinking, which was like that, like everything's off the table, total complete sobriety, straight edge kind of living is still kind of like, Hey asshole. Like I remember when we were all, you know, we were completely off of yeah. everything and didn't do anything. And, you know, even David's conversation of like, um, uh he cutely said like a uh, sick bong rip and i was laughing because uh, he's referring to my marijuana consumption and my sick bong bong rip is like a tiny little puff off of a pin but my but the weight of it feels like what he just said but the real shame was around my munchies you know eating yeah. eating unconsciously um which I don't you know talking out loud even 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 this morning the reality is like I told I was joking about with Morgan this morning and I can't remember exactly what I said something about I went full werewolf last night and because I left the kit you know the, the kitchen kind of a mess and she just laughed and I laughed and so a lot of the shit was already gone but I thought that was a good you you know great example for this conversation to come around to I loved it I thought it was a great conversation well, and I will Keep doing it yeah bringing youth uh humor around that is i think is a great way to uh yeah i mean can shame really exist yeah you know, where there's genuine humor too i don't know like if you make a joke about something and you're really laughing you're laughing with someone else who by the way like you you the fact that you can tell your wife about something that you feel really shamed about and that you do privately <laughs> you could easily hide yeah if you yeah, really yeah. clean up the yeah 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 thing you could hide. <laughs> but uh you know the fact that you do that you have a partner who can be like you know see that and support it and laugh with you about it yeah. that that's already i would think just hanging on to that idea would bring that 70 that you said you experienced it would just take the edge off of it 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 did the, you know what I mean? yeah and and for folks who are just joining us here live on instagram and, and facebook this is the end of a two-hour conversation that we had with an author and journalist, uh, David McRaney, who's uh, a, 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 a smart guy. He's a very smart guy, and he's a very empathetic human being as well. And he helped me walk out of a, um, a self-perception that was mostly shame around um, a, a real incident in my life last night, um, smoking a little weed and eating a lot of food till the point where I hurt really bad. And I had to stay up. I had to like stay up an extra hour to stop hurting before I went to bed. And I was, and I think that was part of the removal of the shame too, is just like living with the consequences of indigestion after powering through a bag of granola. I hear you. I mean, I, I, just, <laughs> I told you some of the epic stories of what I was, when I was struggling with that, yeah. that aspect of myself, you know what? It might be good to revisit. Yeah. Cause I did get out of that. And it's mm. one of the things that I did change. I mean, yeah, he's talking about, I love that part. Uh, I think it was in the little bio or intro that, and someone else, I just pieced other bios yeah. together, but it, it talked about the rare circumstances. And I think there was another adjective too. I can't remember what hmm. it was. Um, uh, that 
cause a mind to change. All right. And I think they caused a mind to change, not incrementally, you know, like minds can change. Oh, sure. Incrementally, yeah. 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 Sure. Or sometimes quickly. Well, sometimes yeah. they fucking yeah. go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And uh, I had one of those around food too. And oh, really? Definitely, man. You read it. I wrote, I wrote that story about it. Um, but uh, uh, I just think that like, there's these weird uh, jujitsu. We talk about that. Um, little moves that one can make uh, that have usually to do with acceptance. Yeah. And I'm not saying I know how to do this. I, it was a miracle. It was rare. Yeah. You know, and it happened one one morning for me where I just decided because mine was a, was a, what do you call it, it was a um, body dysmorphia right you know and so i see myself as fat and mm-hmm. lean as hell mm-hmm. you know uh, but it was very real mm-hmm. you know and it's yeah. scary yeah uh, because then everything you eat is just going to make you look worse yeah every bite you take wow. you know and so one day i decided to be the fat guy <laughs> I'm serious. Yeah, like, yeah. That's what I said. I remember I that. Like, yeah. I was like, well, fuck it. I'm just going to be fat because I really want to eat a couple of breakfast burritos this morning. You know, and my body yeah. needed it. Too. Yeah. And something about that, man, caused change. It was like a half spontaneous statement that I made to myself yeah. about 15 years ago. Yeah. And I know that's not your, you, that it's not like you could just say that. Your, right. Yours is a, its own nuanced little thing. Yeah. But I wonder, yeah. I wonder if you're closer to finding that. I've been, I've been, accepting myself more in this space because in a lot of ways cannabis has been really helpful in in extrapolating thoughts like i i've been able to go deeper into my mind with the help of cannabis around certain things yeah and i have to then go well okay one of the consequences of this is also is that is that it suppresses the signal in my brain that tells me i'm full so am i willing to take that risk Mm right oh i see right so and and generally and i've got some parameters that like yeah it's fine i can normally just like have a nice walk with my dog go to bed and it's and that is generally what happens but then every once in a while i'll go you know i'll get that like werewolf hunger that is insatiable that has led me to epic food vendors I even ate a MRE once that we were saving for the the big one. The, it's an MRE. Meals ready to eat by the military. It's like emergency oh. rations. I was oh. home alone. This was gosh, a couple of years ago, and home alone. No one was around. Confession time, and I hadn't done any grocery shopping because I hate grocery shopping, and the house was generally empty of food. And there was an MRE, a military bag of food, in the back of a of a closet somewhere. <laughs> there's all kinds of disgusting. stuff in that because some of that amazing. has to just do with like dude learn to go sh- you know <laughs> not learn but you know what i mean i don't want to say totally about, but like yeah god because we've all been there i don't yeah. want to go shopping fuck that what's in the house <laughs> oh, you dug deep you went into the bedroom closet it was it was no it wasn't the bedroom closet it was the weird cabinet above the refrigerator in the back like behind the dishes that you never use you know like the nice wine glass or whatever hey we gotta go um this was awesome yeah, you'll think it's fun.